I just want to suggest to people, there is actually a tweet from Language Learner that already has the code so that you can pull up the map already that he will be using tonight. And I will put that into the Nest really quick. I already have the map up on my iPad in front of me, and I have it up on my phone also, but of course it's minimized. If you don't still have it from when language used this before, going down live map, it is a yellow, it is a blue and yellow icon. It's not too hard to find. So just wanted to recommend that for people who are going to be joining us tonight. He will be using Andrew Perpetua's map tonight. He uses those very frequently, but he sometimes uses other maps. Just wanted to get people set up for that if you have the opportunity. I can watch a big screen movie on my phone. Good evening and good evening, language learner. It's been a, it's been a while. Looking forward to listening to news today. Another thing I wanted to mention in Second World War, there were really armies were millions. In terms of when we are looking at casualties, we should also keep in mind as a proportion of uh, total force. These are really mind-boggling numbers. It's, uh, yeah, mind-boggling. I understand this is dictatorship, total control of information, but eventually the truth will come out. And I do not recall anything comparable in, in many years. Yeah, just think about it as a proportion of... Uh, of those who fight. Thank you. Thank you, Alex. And good evening, Nancy. I see you have joined me for a moment. Yes, I snuck in on you guys. Hello. Is it? I feel like it's a little. Go ahead, let Go ahead, language. <laughs> I was going to say, I feel like it's a little late in Ireland now. So you'll pass my bedtime, certainly. Yes, but they. Go ahead, sorry. Nope, go ahead. I was just going to make a joke. So I worked with a number of the Irish brethren and I recognize that they have a tendency to stay up late, so good to see you. Yes, G-Man likes to stay up late and spend time with us at all hours, and we appreciate that. Good evening, Mark. How are you? Yeah, good. Thanks, Prince Heather. Just to pick up it for me on G-Man's comment about deaths, I think the UK was more affected in the First World War in terms of military casualties. Certainly, my, the school I was at was a small what called a grammar school in Newbury and Berkshire in a rural area. And we used to read the names of all the, the boys who had died from that school. First World War was massive. Second World War, fewer. One in the Korean War. And if you look around, around Britain, the memorials typically are longer for the First World War than the Second World War. And there was a big problem following the First World War with women unable to find people to marry. And, that's gonna, and that must have had an impact on society for, for decades. And I think that's going to happen. It's going to happen in Russia. It'll probably have happened. And that's just one of the, that's one of the consequences of, of this, isn't it? Just the demographic effects are going to be pretty massive. You could already see them in Ukraine now, depending on the area. From all the reporting, they're likewise massive in areas of Russia. I, I think I talked about this last year, but there was a really poignant interview, which I recommend because frankly, if you're not 
intelligently consuming Russian media or looking at things come out of Russia, you're missing a whole side to this. And there was a man who was interviewed by Voice of America. So obviously he's not a fan of Russia's actions. He served in the war. He left his records, right? He recommended his son serve because he was the only way to get out of this tiny village that had no support from Eastern Russia. His son was killed very early on outside Kiev. He then enlisted as, I'm going to go get revenge and came back just a broken man. And by all accounts, from the interview, it sounds like he's just been interrupted going off to hang himself. They talk a lot about not just the brain drain, but uh, Russia's demographic problem, which has been a issue well before this war. It's not getting any better when you progressively start slaughtering all of your youngest male populace. And uh, there's going to be long-term consequences, even if this war ended today, the, the uh, generational differences are going to carry onward for decades to come. Go ahead, Freedom. Yeah. Hi, Prince Heather. Hi, Nancy. So we all agree that Ukraine is going to win this war, right? I think the question might be, how is Russia going to lose this war? They keep talking about peace proposals. Every now and then they come up, Russia wants peace proposals, but they say we have, the Ukraine has to recognize the new realities of the border. Yeah. That's ridiculous. Come on. That's a non-starter. And yet they keep bringing it up and who knows about this general SVR account. Maybe Putin's dead. Maybe he's not. We're going to find out sooner or later, <laughs> but how is Russia going to lose this war gracefully without imploding? Yeah. I don't know if anybody has an answer for that at this point. I don't think that, I don't think that there is a graceful way to lose a war. I, I am really, I'm really not sure. G-Man, go ahead. Yeah. It's okay. It's an interesting question, but I don't really care at this point. Lose it, they must. Uh, and the after, the after we'll have to, we'll have to see. We may have to pick up a lot of pieces, but they need to lose the war. Just the follow up to Mark's statement, that is true. The first world war was much heavier in manpower, uh, deaths. It was nearly a million, uh, 880,000 British forces died. My great grandfather among them. And that's nothing. So that was 6% of the adult male population. So much so, the total of the adult population meant that in the 1921 census, there was recorded 109 women for every 100 men. So that did, it doesn't sound that much, but that did impact the demographic for a dinner generation. And it led to other things happening, like 1938, the appeasement thing, because Chamberlain had served in the First World War and he was just... No, they didn't just didn't want another war, but the war came anyway, and uh, they had to deal with it. So that was one of the reasons why in the Second World War, Churchill had said to Roosevelt early on that there wasn't going to be the same type of war. They wanted to concentrate on machines, that the machines do the losses of machines more than the losses of man. And I think that was where they started with this giving troops more protection. It wasn't ideal. They still lost a lot of men. And the Americans lost a lot of men, especially in the Pacific, because it was more infantry heavy and less mechanized. But that's where that came from. And the war in the Second World War was won 
in the Battle of the Atlantic, in seas off Japan and in the air. They would still need the man, the manpower to actually take the ground. You can't do without that. But it's in the important battles, it was interdicting the machinery of the war that Germany and Japan needed to win it. And more machinery of war was destroyed in factories or on the way to the front than on the front in that in the Second World War. And the West continuing to do that's the way we fight wars now. Sorry. We will not go into history because we're talking the language. Thank you. Thank you, G-Man. Mark, go ahead. If the language is ready, I'll shut up. I'll shut up. Otherwise, I want to go back to G-Man, but I'm very happy to turn off the mic. I'm ready wherever you guys are. I think I've got my... Okay. Thank you. Yeah, cheers. Um, so thank you. Howdy, everybody. In a while. Yeah. Let's dive into it. For those who haven't heard this before, a little background. I used to do this fairly regularly. Now I have a few more people that I talk to in Ukraine. So it's a little easier in some ways and a little harder in others. And perhaps I have a better perspective on it now that I've been there. The way this generally works is we start in Northwest around Belarus. We proceed clockwise and then end with some general statements. I'll post the script that I'm reading from if you prefer to read it that way later, as well as a recording of the audio. If you are having trouble falling asleep at night, um, you can, I've been told I can put you right to bed. Otherwise, if there's questions, I'm happy to stick around and answer them. And, um, but we'll just hold those to the end. And there's a map. If you are using it, it should be available on your phone. I haven't used it in a while, but uh, some really great guys put it together last year. We're using Anne Perpetua's map. It's the best, bar none. And there's a number of icons there. If you're looking at it, you should see what I'm looking at on my other phone screen, which will just show you a bunch of icons. For instance, what missile strikes have occurred, the general extent of territory, as well as other events. Ideally, when I move the map, it'll move for you too. So that way, when I say Oleksandrivka, you know which of the 200 I'm talking about. Your link to that should be up in the top. If you are in the app and it's saying you need a code, the code is KH, that is Kilo Hotel. You'll find it's a lot easier unless you spend all your time staring at maps of Ukraine, in which case we, we can all pity each other, right? But with that, we'll jump right into it. This is going to be a cumulative update. So we'll begin. Okay. So this is the military update from. October 28th through October 30th, 23, day 612 through 614 of the Russian invasion of Ukraine. Starting in Belarus and proceeding clockwise, Russian instructors have continued to increase their presence in Belarus over the last few weeks, specifically training Belarusian drone operators. This appears to specifically be recon drones, such as the Russian-produced Supercam, up to their 350 model, which has an operating range of approximately 240 kilometers. It is suggested that Russia may be attempting to recruit Belarusian drone operators in the future. There has not been any noted presence of Shahid drone operators among the training cohorts, as we know those can be tended to be launched from Belarus. However, otherwise, there continue to be no significant operational threats from Belarus. They have like 1,500 soldiers at the border, although they are almost on their 80th week extension for their ongoing April 2022 exercises. So give it up, it'll be week 100 before you know it. Moving into central Ukraine and the West. In the aftermath of a very heavy storm in central Ukraine, several people were killed by debris and power infrastructure in 16 oblasts was damaged and taken offline by the wind. 
This poses concerns for possible future damage to power infrastructure should Russian missile attacks resume. There has been a noted launch of air launch cruise missile attacks for well over a month now, and it is believed that Russia is stockpiling missiles over the winter. There were, however, a dozen Shahid drones and two missiles launched overnight, all of which were intercepted. Zelensky and his staff had a sobering interview with Time today, which expressed his administration's concerns regarding equipment shortages at the front line, the world, quote, getting bored of the war like it's a rerun of a show, unquote, and the shifting international focus to the Israel-Gaza war. Concerns were also raised about the aging demographics of the ZSU, with the average age of soldiers over 42. However, the Ukraine government has been making a number of statements lately, implying that those who seek local police employment as a way to dodge the draft, if you will, will no longer be exempt from mobilization in the future. Speaking from personal experience, there's a lot of 18 to 20-year-olds running around with police uniforms, and there's a lot more older people running around with camo. So I'll leave it there. Following civilian protests and petitions, the Kiev city government is positively responding to requests to divert more of its funds to the Ukrainian military after a rash of apparent corruption centered around purchasing extravagant luxury for bomb shelters rather than more efficient usages of money have made news in recent weeks. And the Ukrainian Minister of Foreign Affairs stated that by the end of this week, Ukraine will work to make substantial progress in European Union membership negotiations, so keep an eye out. Meanwhile, to the east, around Kharkiv, Sumy, and Chernihiv, Russia continues to shell the border settlements and also reinforce their own side of the border, particularly in Belgorod, with mines and other impediments. Moving to the front, around the Kupiat region on the Oskil River, while Russian forces continue to launch attacks from the northeast Kupiat's direction, there has likewise been no significant change in territory. The terrain between Liman Pershi and Kupiat's towards Petropavivka is very exposed to Ukrainian artillery fire, and as such, Ukraine has maintained decisive control. The poor weather conditions in recent days have led to a noted reduction in drone and helicopter operations on the Russian side. Further to the east, Russian forces are continuing attempts to advance west from the town of Yehitnik through the ground control over the fields northeast of the major regional highway in the area remains unclear. Russian forces appear to be bombarding more of the fields rather than the highway itself, indicating that it's still positional warfare. Further south, towards the Russian-controlled city of Spatove, which is one of the major hubs in the area, Ukraine can, appears to be conducting a number of strikes on the highway to the southwest of Spatove, with drone footage showcasing a number of Russian vehicles destroyed. Further south, near Makivka, Russia continues to make slow progress across the fields in the last several weeks. It appears that Russia is still focused on regaining control of the Zerobets River as a natural terrain feature to both reinforce their positions as well as an attempt to freeze the conflict in Luhansk Oblast. Continued assaults towards the town of Torsk, located further south, also support this conclusion. Overall, in the Kupiansk district, 220 families with children in 21 settlements in the Kupiansk area are being forcibly evacuated after a long process and discussion and one former mandatory evacuation that a lot of people didn't follow. Police are now being given the power to refuse re-entry to families bringing children into the said conflict zones, and humanitarian organizations are standing by to assist in transport. So only the latest in the long story of what do we do with families who have children in the war zone who don't want to leave. Moving down to the Kramatorsk area, south of Bakhmut, Ukrainian forces continue to make strikes towards Kurumivka along the river, 
and broader attempt to retake the southern access highway to Bakhmut city proper. Russian forces are reportedly strengthening their positions and sizings here per the Ukraine general staff and beginning to move from defensive to offensive operations. Moving down towards Avdivka, where we continue to see Russian attempts at an offensive, Russian forces have continued to make small advances around northwest and southwest of Divka at great cost. Currently, the northwest contact line is the main highway leading into the town and it appears the bulk of Russian forces are concentrated here. To the southwest, Russian forces continue to make intermittent progress across the fields, but the advances here from the town of Lodyan have been minimal in comparison. Ukraine defense officials claim that Russia has lost over 6,500 soldiers in the Avdivka offensive alone in the last 20 days. Airstrikes and artillery fire continue in the city and main roads leading into it, but another Russian Su-25 close air support jet was shot down today. This is the sixth one shot down since the offensive began only 20 days ago. Should Russian forces continue to make uh, any sort of advance from the north, they will likely attempt to secure control not over the highway itself, which is frankly less important, but over the western road leading into Avdivka, which is and has been the main supply route. The massive losses of Russian forces over the last weeks, due in large part to an, a frankly appropriate amount of Ukrainian artillery ammo, will complicate Russian plans, equipment, and morale should they continue. Reportedly, Wagner forces are also being introduced to the area, as well as additional Storm Z units, the penal battalions, which are being used in highly costly infantry assaults. Either due to a lack of Russian artillery resources or caring, these infantry assaults often go unsupported by Russian artillery and result in massive losses. Due to the destruction of heavy Russian equipment previously following failed assaults and the encroaching winter, it remains to be seen how many more of these meat assaults will be fed to the grinder. In more positive news, Ukrainian doctors successfully extracted a pencil eraser-sized piece of metal from a soldier's heart today, following a long and complex surgery, and the patient is expected to recover. Overall, in the occupied regions, Donetsk and Luhansk, Russian forces executed a family of nine, including two young children, in the town of Volnovas, when they refused to turn their home over to them. After considerable local outcry, the occupation government arrested two Russian soldiers from the Far East. Russia has decided to place Luhansk Oblast under the control of the Russian Independent Republic of Tatarstan in terms of continued re-education of local youth into paramilitary programs. At least 200 youth have already been taken to said camps. Russian forces are apparently reaching out to prisoners in the occupied territories who are incarcerated prior to the war to try and convince them to enlist. Russia is also attempting to settle former soldiers in the occupied zone, promising them lodgings and essentially carte blanche with their treatment of local civilians, which has led to numerous concerns about increased lawlessness. And Moving to Zaporizhia and the Southern Actus, Ukrainian forces continue to launch strikes on Russian equipment near Novodonetsk and Staromilivka in the general Vulodar area of eastern Zaporizhia Oblast towards the Donetsk region. There is apparent gain towards the river, river rest of Robotnik. Russian forces have intensified their drone strikes on the western axis of southern axis in recent days with up to 35 daily attacks across the counteroffensive zone, as you might call it, reported. The increased activity of Russian first-person view drones and the unfortunate inclusion of a number of specific drone units has led to a noted increase in casualties and more standoff fighting, as well as losses of APCs and other armored vehicles during assaults. This has caused further complications. Further to the west, 
Russian forces continued to launch drone strikes from an air hodar in the territory of the nuclear power plant across the river into Nikopol. Family members of soldiers who have been enlisted for more than 18 months staged a peaceful protest today in front of the Zaporizhia administration building, demanding a response to their third petition to the government. They claim that due to the lack of clarity on demobilization, morale is suffering and long-serving soldiers are not being given the necessary time to recover after progressive deployments. Similar small protests occurred around the country over the last two days, with government officials coming out to meet the protesters and promising to communicate their concerns. Currently, there is no official government position regarding demobilization during Ukraine's period of martial law and no maximum or minimum time frame communicated. Down to Kherson and the river. Following Russian shelling, electricity supply to the area around Beroslav, northeast of Kherson city, has been interrupted to a number of locations and is unclear when it will be restored. Russian forces also shelled a popular library in the city of Kherson, but the fire is extinguished with no casualties. Several injuries are reported from daily general shelling. Per the Kherson government, more than 600 children remain in areas that are critically unsafe along the front line. The city administration entreated family members to evacuate said children to safer areas. Across the river, Ukrainian forces continue to skirmish with Russian troops on the south bank with continued evidence of Ukrainian long-range artillery fires and drone strikes. While there does not appear to be a sizable contingent of Ukrainian forces across the river at this time, Ukraine has advanced further from their bridgehead at the Antonovsky Bridge, as well as further towards a small village, I can pull it up here, of Krinky, where Russian forces are currently complaining about a lack of supplies, and Ukrainian forces are showing a number of drone strike videos. To the Black Sea, Odessa, and Crimea, Russia has recently targeted the Odessa ship repair factory with missiles and drones, although there has not been any noted threats or actual acts on them, I should say, there's been plenty of threats to shipping going in and out of Odessa. They continue to target port infrastructure in a variety of ways. In Crimea, Oleg Zarev, a former Ukrainian parliamentarian and later separatist official post-2014, was shot twice in an SBU assassination attempt as confirmed by the agency. He's currently in the hospital in critical condition. He was believed to be Russia's pick for the replacement for Zelensky should their initial attempts east. In Odessa city, there was a protest demanding the city government divert more funds to the armed forces and less to discretionary city projects, a continuation of a broader movement across the country. And per Ukrainian telegram channels, Russian air defense forces in Olenivka, Crimea, were struck by long-range missiles. This comes after last night's large Ukrainian drone strike attempt and reported Ukrainian naval drone activity outside the naval base in Sevastopol. Meanwhile, in Russia proper, the Russian AFIP oil refinery in Krasnodar, which is just across from Crimea, was attacked by two Ukrainian drones. This site processes a sizable quantity of fuel for the Russian aerial forces, about 7 million tons last year. There continues to be international fallout from the heavily anti-Semitic demonstrations in Dagestan, with protesters breaking into an airport and attempting to board a jet from Tel Aviv, looking for Jewish passengers. While the Russian government blames this on Ukrainian influence ops, the more likely culprit is entrenched divisive Russian propaganda. 20 people were injured, with two remaining in serious condition due to brain injuries. Russian political personnel have expressed concern that if such demonstrations spread from the Dagestan region, could lead to greater divisions in society among the broader Russian populace. Likewise, there have been increased reports of ethnic conflicts between the Tuvan minority and ethnically Russian sources in the Russian military, 
many times due to unequal distribution of equipment, as well as generalized racism. These have resulted in fights and deaths. Overall, yesterday, Ukraine conducted 21 airstrikes and Russian forces conducted 47. And Ukrainian forces eliminated some 860 soldiers for a total of 299,940, almost certainly 300,000 at time of recording, 17 armored personnel carriers and other armored vehicles, 15 tanks, one air defense, hello Crimea, 14 artillery systems, 23 cars and trucks, one aircraft, and 20 UAVs. Overseas, Germany provided Ukraine with a new package of military aid, including another IRIS-T air defense system. The German Air Force said on Monday that a new group of Ukrainian soldiers have begun training to operate Patriot surface-to-air missile systems in Germany, likely prompting their inclusion packages in the future. Training F-16 jets are expected to arrive from the Netherlands to Romania within the next two weeks, at which point training should begin shortly. Norway has stated that they are ready to provide assistance to Ukraine in medical treatment and rehabilitation for injured fighters, including in Norway itself. And the third Ukrainian peace formula meeting held in Balta on the 28th and 29th, focusing on the issues of nuclear safety, food and energy security, releasing POWs, and the restoration of Ukraine's general borders, has been completed. 66 representatives attended a considerable increase from the last one in Saudi Arabia. And with that, this is a quick one. I'm about done. If there's any questions, I'm happy to stick around. Thank you so much. This is wonderful language. I have missed your updates so much. And being able to follow along is on the map is just, I forgot how much I love that too. And it's just good to have you back doing updates. And anybody who would like to ask language a question, please request to speak. Come on up, raise your hand. And when we get some hands here, language, I'm going to let language call on the hands himself. I think it might take a day or two for people to realize that we're back doing a couple of times here to realize that we're back doing these updates with your language. But I can tell you that I am looking forward to it and looking forward to to hearing you a couple of times a week, at least to, to give us these updates because they are great. James, go ahead and then we'll let language take over the hands. Hi, language. I, I started listening to these particular things not long before you took off. I'm getting, I appreciate them very much now because I can see all the units and we can see where they're moving. It's through this kind of map technology. It's awesome. But what I really admire is the work done on pulling the stories that really do show an overall view and are most interesting. So that's really cool. It's, this is the kind of thing. Is this going to go up on Spotify? I mean, suppose I don't have a Spotify, I have a SoundCloud, but I think Spotify. Some people told me Apple Music's better, but I'm not cool enough for an iPhone, so I'd have to figure that oh, out. I meant, I meant mean, us doing it, yeah. using this what? episode to Spotify. Yeah, sure, go now. Okay. What do you think, Prince? Uh, Nancy? Yeah, let me let me do some messaging in the background, and I think that will probably, usually when we have a speaker card, they try to do that, do a Spotify. It just I know language will put up the audio, and language will put up the text, because he has that way his way of doing that. But we can put it up on our Spotify also. I think that might be be good if languages. You can always download. Yeah. I just try and edit it a little bit so that way it's easier for people. Exactly. You know, I could pull some of the background noise and stuff out of it. Exactly. Thank you. James, continue, please. I, as long as there's a route to it, I think that's going to be good to share because it, it comes off as like a weekly review kind of format very well. So great. And I hope your travels have been good. 
Now I'll let the next person speak. Thank you. Let's go, Chris. Language, I happen to be awake in the middle of the night. It's so great to hear you. It's listening to the shipping forecast again, and I'm committed to, I'm committed to promoting your report as I used to be back in the old days. So great to hear you. I'm a sort of, am I right in thinking that you may be skipped over top Mac area for OPSEC reasons or, or something? Because we're looking at the honest truth is until I see more evidence on the ground from TalkMac, I'm not going to call anything there. The evidence I have of guys there is challenging to put it politely. So I, I figured I'd leave that out. The Southern offensive is, it's, it's not going great as I'm sure it's not going to shock anybody here. Unfortunately, the, the lack of ammunition and now the changing weather conditions, as well as the increasing prevalence of Russian drones has made assaults more difficult because if you're just running across a field, then you're doing what the Russians are doing. And we see how well that works around Avdivka. While there have been continued strikes towards Tokmak, and I look forward to seeing more of them as far as notable ground changes over the last two to three days, I haven't seen any pressing evidence of them. Okay, language. Thank you for that. Thank you. Hope you guys are all been well. Fletch, let's go to you. Yeah. Hi, language. Yeah. Thanks for the subject. Yeah, I understand some of the OPSEC side things. One question. Now, we had the general staff saying this week that they are producing tens of thousands of drones on a monthly basis. Now, can you tell me how you think that will affect things on the front as far as Ukraine is concerned? It, drones are the super weapon of this war, more than anything else. I'll have people here come from my head, but I'd rather take all 16 of those Abrams and turn that money into an American FPV funded drone program. There's a lot of reasons why that'll never happen. And we can choose to agree or disagree about whether it's even a good idea, but I have watched drones just decimate the battlefield. It is really wild. You can have a guy who's, they're usually not a huge dude. It's just sort of small guys, men and women, counted looking types, not to diminish our accountant friends. And they sit in a building a couple kilometers from the front and they put on this contraption and then they kill 10 people a day, every day, or vehicles. And it's consistent, sometimes more. I've also, unfortunately, borne witness to incredibly competent groups of Americans, frankly, form, obviously former American soldiers, race, who just got turned to hamburger by uh, Russian drones. Because there's very little you can do if somebody decides to fly an RPG into your face or your car. So by... The virtue, and that's for people who are very well-trained, very capable. Overall, the Russians are not as well-trained nor as capable. So if we're able to outproduce them, and there is the concern of China and the Russian drone factories and whatnot, then it will have a considerable increase in Ukraine's combat effectiveness. The only thing that would be better would be artillery ammo. Frankly, I think those two are the most important things in terms of offensive arms that can be provided right now. And FPV drones... Any battle in the war, any battle in the world now, I'm not going to, certainly not going to get start talking about the uh, Gaza-Israel war, but I, my biggest concern has ever been since I saw um, Hamas using a drone there, that this could end up being something of a wake-up call to Western militaries that, oh, this is a problem that's not going away and that we don't quite have a handle on. Because when it's $500 in an RPG from the 70s, and that's worth, I don't know, a hole in the tank, the cost-benefit analysis becomes very concerning. In short, 
it's a good thing. I do know for a fact that there's a lot of people who have pivoted to just drones, especially the smaller ones, which is the things that I was more exposed to, as well as the recon drones in my time. But uh, as far as the larger ones, that's also part of it. But I don't know as much about those. I never had a never had any occasion to go surfing around in uh, Odessa. I don't know if that answered the question or not. Yeah, it does. Um, now, you did mention about the Zaporizhia front um, not gaining, shall we say, or not doing as well as was hoped. And obviously the minefields are a key, initially the key scenario. Just a question from a bigger picture point of view. I've seen how Zaporizhia can be a fixing area for some of the better qualified troops, the BDB that were moved in from the Kremlin Kupiansk area and also from Hersan. Now, from a strategic point of view, that certainly weakened Hersan. And with all these new drones coming on, where there's tens of thousands on a monthly basis, do you see that fixing those troops in the Saparizia region would benefit the Kherson front? I don't know if it's necessary, because they're both, there's benefits in both, right? And unless you're going to send guys over the bodies of their friends to go pick out mines, which, spoiler alert, it's a bad way to do things, then you need to have some breathing room to clear minefields. There's just no other way about it. And because you can't go around them and going through them is not recommended. So you need some time. Um, otherwise, you're going to lose people. Even if they're very good at diffusing mines, they're probably less good at teleporting out of the way of artillery. Unfortunately, having a Russian presence there is going to lead to some stagnation on the front. That's just the nature of things. The weather, as that changes, Zaporizhia is very flat. I think like Kansas flat, if you've ever been there. It's just fields. So that makes it challenging because all the tree lines have been just turned into splinters and just a couple freestanding structures or freestanding trees, I should say. So it makes it difficult to amass things there because you can see it from quite a ways away. And especially with the increased prevalence of drones, not all of them are suicide drones. Some of them are just UAVs that are looking out for things. You can see them from a ways kind. While that's good and bad for both sides, it does lead, it generally leads itself to stagnation, especially when you have heavily prepared defensive lines like the Russians do. I don't know of any good solution to that off the top of my head. Uh, it certainly is a little bit beyond my scope, but. I think it is pulling some forces from Kherson. The, the question is, can Ukraine push across the river, secure a bridgehead and begin to reinforce it in Kherson? I hope so. I've known guys on those boats and they can do a really good job. The issue is that when you hit defenses on the boats, it's usually very messy because the Russians will just sit there with a thermal sniper or something. And it's still rip, right? It's a kilometer, two kilometers across. How are you going to hide from that? You can't. We can see them. Think about being out on the sea and you've got a thermal imager, a guy a mile or two away, you're probably going to see him. It's not like he's got a lot that he can hide behind. So there had been a couple assaults, actually. It's all public knowledge now. I had worked with a guy who participated in a Ukrainian assault, multiple ones towards the nuclear power plant itself, which unfortunately they got turned away because the Russians had thermal imagers and 50 caliber set up. Not the highest level of military technology, but there's not a lot of places to hide when you're on a boat in the middle of a river. Until Ukraine is able to push further inland from the river, it's a catch-22. They have to push further inland before they can get enough troops so they can push further inland, right? Because if your goal is, we're going to land everything on the beach and walk in, 
not going to work. But if you say, oh, we need to push further in so that way we have the beach, how are you going to do that without getting all the forces over in the first place? That's a question for people who are much more adept at these things than I am. But keep an eye there because it would appear that Russian forces are broadly under-equipped in that area and are not really sure on how to handle this. Thank you. Thank you. Hey, I don't know who had their hand up next, but I don't think I've heard Dryfly ask a question. So let's go to Dryfly and then Chris, in case you lost track of their language. Sorry. Hello, language. I just want to thank you for what you did. I was following your um, progress. You disappeared from the site. Then we heard you went over to Ukraine and actually did things more than just talk. Talking has got a, a value, but what you did sounds like it was really, really important. And I want to thank you. My question for you is you've seen it on the ground now, and we all see the reports in the paper and we read it. If you were to say one area that we should worry or be concerned about, what is it? And if you should see one area that we should be more optimistic about, what would be that? And I'll listen. Thank you. Thank you for the kind words. I will briefly sidebar. I'm grateful for the work that I've done there and the work that my team has done there. And however, a lot of the biggest question I always got was just, hey, where are you from? I'm from America. Oh, what are you doing here? And then they're being like, oh, and they say, oh, you must be Ukrainian. You got family from here. No, you've been to Ukraine before. Buddy, no, I've never been east of X before. Uh, what the hell are you doing here, right? Which is the funny response is, why? Is there something going on? But once you get past the jokes, just being like, they go away. People talk about it. People talk about us. Uh, go, yeah. People talk about you in Europe, talk about America. And especially the closer you get to the front and guys who are just glassy eyes and shocked from everything, they're like, people care about me that I've never met. It's a very powerful feeling. Take some hearts in yourselves that just for lack of a less romantic term, just keeping the flame alive, if you will. And some big things Zelensky's talking about now, the world's getting war exhaustion. They're tired of seeing the 10th rerun, as he puts it. They want to move on to the latest thing, whatever that might be. And so having people who go, actually, this is still going on. Let's focus on it is an important thing. So let's not discount the work you guys do too. As far as areas to watch, areas to be concerned, I've been to Avdivka. Avdivka is a hell. I am, the only positive side of this is that people are finally realizing it more publicly, but Avdivka has been a mess for a while. And it was particularly challenging when I was in that area. And just the, at this point, I hope that Ukraine has moved more forces there. It seems they've certainly moved more artillery ammo, which is ripping apart the Russians, but the equipment and command there was bad. This is several months ago. The problem has been resolved now, but there was a whole artillery or a whole tank battalion that just got lost while I was there. They showed up one day and the guy was like, Hey, we're with the tankers. And one of the dudes at the officer's house we were staying in pulled a gun and it was like, the, what the hell are you talking about? We don't have a tank battalion around here. Who are you spotting? I was like, what's wrong with you? We're in the same brigade. And there's just, there was a lack of communication, a lot of fog of war. Got resolved. They got it. They were like, oh, wow, we have a dozen tanks that we didn't know we had. But that level of lack of communication in that area, because it is really a black hole, once you hit a, a certain town there, everything going east, it's, unless you're talking to them face-to-face -face or on a radio, you have no idea what's happened there. And there have been some really terrible things that have happened in Avdivka over the last year, which I'll leave out. But if that communication gap can be closed, it will make things much better. I suspect because there's more tension on it and they appointed a commander to manage everything there a little more effectively, I think it is. But when I was there, there were a lot of problems, which 
we helped work to resolve. And I know some really good people working to resolve them, but it's hard to shake that. As far as places to look towards, honestly, I would look toward Bakhmut. The area south of Bakhmut, as Ukraine forces continue to try and push towards it, especially up the highway there, would be significant because just from really, if nothing else than a political victory, which is probably all that's going to be accomplished at this point there, being able to say, hey, Wagner died for nothing, and we took the city back, even though it's just a bunch of stones at this point, would they would have some larger consequences, especially because Ukraine needs to have these military victories to generate political success for their international. That's my hypothesis. You could point to any part of the map and say, this specific town and this specific region will give them this specific vantage point. Ersan looks cool, but I've been burned enough times by guys telling me that they were gallivanting on the south bank of Harrison that until I see it in color in front of me, I'm not going to believe it. So I'm just going to hold my horses a little bit on there. Kupiansk in that area is just positional. And then the area around Liman is challenging. The Russians continue to push there, but I don't anticipate that being a major breakthrough as of yet. But that's just a theory, right? There's a lot more. The truth is, seeing it from a ground level perspective is that you miss the forest for the trees and you just end up focusing on really much smaller things. There are weeks I just wouldn't read the paper because I was like, okay, I don't know what's going on in this region. I can't really focus on it. I know what's going on in a 10 kilometer circle around me and that's good enough versus everything else that's happening in Archive, It might as well be another planet, right? It might as well be New York. I have no idea. Unfortunately, I wasn't exactly is sitting in a computer room, tapped into every source of information while I was there. Yeah. The SBU declined my offer. They said, no, we won't put you in charge of our intelligence apparatus. Go get yourself a coffee. So instead I went and sat in some buildings. Can I ask a quick follow-up? Yes, we go ahead. You mentioned Kirsten and I agree with you. I've been watching that, but again, we're, you know, 30,000 foot level. So we don't see what's on the ground. What do you think the potential is? And I'm dating myself a bit for it to be more of an insurgency type campaign. And I'm thinking not so much like just guerrilla war in the purest sense of bombs and cafes, but I'm thinking more like an insurgency like you saw in uh, Vietnam in the Mekong Delta or along the Ho Chi Minh Trail where they infiltrated small groups until they got a pretty large uh, concentration and then they would break out and raise all kind of holy hell, at least until the U.S. could chopper in some units and, and subjugate again. By then they would scramble off. I've always thought that in Ukraine on that Delta area, all the way from there, almost to the connector with Crimea, that area would be ripe for that kind of warfare. Do you think that's possible or is it just too damn open and the Russians have too big of a presence? And I'll listen. I think it's reasonable. The guys I've known down there have been having a lot more fun than they should doing things like that. More raids, raiding parties, you would call them. There's a couple of funny patches and shirts floating around. I've noticed that Funnily enough that, oh, the foreign fighters that are fighting there who are on the contract and whatnot that I interacted with, ones that served in their country's Marine forces seem particularly drawn to Harrison, which I always found amusing. The, the water boys seek the water as it were, and they've been successful in it. it. As long as you get off the river, because it's, again, you're on a flat plain and they can see you, then things get much easier. And it is marshy and damp, easier being a relative term. But I can see more raids, especially to a certain degree further inland, because Russia doesn't really want to commit all the forces there to the river because if they get all the way and they say, ha, we have set ourselves up on the river now, nobody can cross. 
Well, Ukraine goes, okay, cool. Have some artillery. We're right across. So it's a catch 22 for them. And I can see them essentially ceding a gray area there to Ukrainian forces to run around them. Although I don't know if they'll, if they would intentionally pull their forces back completely. I think you'll see more of those sort of raiding operations, uh, at least for the foreseeable future. What I would be interested in is the area to the West, and I'll pull it up on the map here, actually the Kinburn split, which has been an area of interest to me for some time now, whenever things happen, I would expect to see some action here. Think of the Florida Everglades, very marshy, about 1500 people lived here before the war. Not a lot. There's a lot less now, two towns. Ukrainian forces had attempted some landings there, done some fighting, blew up some stuff and left, never really materialized further. But that's just across the river from Ukraine's major naval base in the region, Orkiv. And so as a consequence, if things start happening, I wouldn't be surprised to see forces landing here as well, if for no other reason than to scare and distract Russian forces over on the area and keep them split on where do we defend. But a hypothesis. If they do tell you, and you're talking to your guy, because they're there, tell them to read up on the Tet Offensive, because that's the one that if they're going to copy one, that would be a, a Tet. Uh, the Vietnamese lost, but it's just because they just did not have the resources to follow up. But if they did a Tet, uh, they did a, an offensive like Tet in that corner. Oh God, I think you could get your foothold and then be able to pour armor across afterward. And I will step down and let others speak. Sure. Yeah. I don't really speak to many generals down there. Mostly just the guys throwing up in the boats, but I'll recommend them your reading list. Uh, let's go to, I think it was Chris Blum. I think it was Martin Zelig and then D. Badrafella. Thank you, language. There's a sort of black earthy realism to everything that you say at the minute. But I was just going to say on the subject of drones and that, I copied prints earlier in the day, I think, and that so I, I could send it to you. But there was a, I don't know, there's a lady called Katerina Histol that works with a drone organization called VACA UAV, or, or I think that's, uh, and she's producing a weekly drone report out of Ukraine now which may be of interest and what i was going to ask you was this area south Zap and that you're going to know better than uh, me or anyone what it's actually uh, as it turns towards winter it's got this like rosy view that that because it's like sandy and it's further south that uh, you don't have the same, I always forget the Ukrainian version of this, but same Rasputitsa type effect. But am I right or wrong? Do, do you know anything about that? What, what's I your would, I'm actually respectful. So Zaporizhia is fields. Now, the first time I was really in the rural part of Ukraine, I was surprised because I looked out the window and I saw that the fields were black. And I was like, my God, what's wrong with those fields? And the person sitting next to me is like, what's wrong with you? That's what dirt looks like. What, what does dirt look like where you're from? So for us in America or in England, I imagine, think the topsoil that you would get at the garden store, it's like that for three meters down. It's just soft. That's why the trenches are so prevalent because you can dig them with your hands to a certain point, unless you run into roots. I've seen guys dig them with tire irons. Like it's just it pulls very soft land in the best of times. There are certain areas where you have more rock and whatnot, but that is less common. And you tend to see that more around a uh, higher elevation relief thing. So if you're going into a hill, then you'll see more rock than dirt, just based on geology that I don't quite pretend to understand. 
So Zaporizhia specifically, you end up with these large rolling fields because it was very much a breadbasket area. And as a consequence, it's, I can see it becoming very marshy, especially once armored vehicles go over it because armored vehicles just tear everything up. The roads specifically, the roads are not great. They are better than you might expect in a lot of parts of Ukraine, but there are other places where it's just garbage. I think the, uh, they were garbage before the war and they're not getting any better anytime soon. Having tracked vehicles going back and forth over them, heavy things, destroying what asphalt they do have, mix that with potholes and water and mud. One of the first things I did when I got there, a, a funny story. Somebody had found I was going, said, Hey, I want to send you some money. And I, I've been very quick saying, oh, no, I'm not going to take, I'm here to help. I'm not here as tourist. So I took the money and then spent it on boots for a, for lanes unit because they're over boots. Cause otherwise like getting mud in your boots sucks and just having something you can step into with your regular shoe and kind of zip it up around there. It makes a big difference. And that says you've seen, maybe not seen, but in the Ukrainian group chats that I've been a part of, people are starting to request those again, which leads me to believe that the last year wasn't an exception. And the loamy earth, if you will, is turning to mud again. Um, hopefully it won't be as bad as it's been in years past, but I think it is a real concern. Um, the other concern, the mines, this is something that scared the hell out of me when I was there. Cause I was nervous about mines to put it mildly. And then once I finally got a reasonable amount of nerves on it, a guy came and I was like, oh, it's the winter and things will slow down. It'll be nice. He goes, yeah, but then you can't see any of the mines anymore. I'm like, what do you mean? He goes, ah, oh, they just put the mines on the ground. What do you think happens when it covered with snow? And then I was instantly terrified. So that's going to make things more difficult. There are ways to detect them, but they are imperfect. And having a, I don't know, a couple inches of snow on top is going to make it more difficult to find. Yeah, thank you very much, language. And uh, the far south, it's like earthy, not sandy, if, if you can answer that. It's Basically, just consider it to be black earth in the south as well, is what you're saying. Is that right? It's also a lot of grass. There's a surprise. Like, this isn't World War One, where like a movie where it's all destitute. It's just shell craters and darkness and haunting music in the background. There's a lot of lush natural light because the soil is rich. So you end up with trenches, but they're covered in weeds. You end up with the forest belts that people actually end up staying in where the trenches are. Those get blasted to hell, but you end up with pretty lush fields still. So that, that does lead to some root formation and keeps things together. But, and then after a while, I've seen trenches when they're new and I've seen trenches when they're very old, a year plus, and trenches when they're old do decay into sand from everything I've seen. They, again, I'm not a geologist or a soil expert, so I'll leave them to describe why it does that. But at some point after a couple months, if it's not being maintained or it basically just gets abandoned and it's not a good trench and most trenches are not then it just turns into this very fine, dusty powder, at which point then things become a little easier to deal with. But it, overall, you're still dealing with all the other area that is just natural earth covered in grass and wheat and stuff. I have some photos of guys uh, who are doing like their little trench clearing thing. And like, as soon as they go into the trench, you just can't see them anymore. They're just like leaves bobbing, you know, it, it can become very difficult just on that alone because you're not getting into a big World War One style. I think that's the biggest thing I would like to change is people think of trenches and we all think World War One. I was in a lot of trenches. I saw two that had wooden supports. And one of them was guys who had been like a dude who an engineer beforehand and was just really fixated on it. Guys make bunkers and the bunkers are nice and 
there's roofs and stuff that guys have made themselves, but the idea that you're going to have something large enough you could drive a car down, it's just not the case. A lot of these, if you have a big backpack, you can't turn around. There were guys I trained who would take the, uh, take the slings off their rifles because they said, oh, that gets in the way in a trench. And I was like, I don't think they're that tight. And then the guy showed me some helmet camera footage. They're that tight. So you're just digging a cleft in very soft earth without a lot of supports. Thankfully, there's not a huge amount of cadence and whatnot, just for a variety of reasons, but you do end up with a huge amount of mud. And because they're lacking those supports, I think that's where a lot of it comes from. Stuff comes from the top, comes from the sides, places that you've dug out roots, and it all just filters to the bottom and you scrape it out how you can, but you're cold and you're miserable. Why do you want to go be more cold and miserable? So things just sit there in my limited experience. Well, yeah, thank you, language. Thank you. Let's go to the Bowder. You've been very good. I just want to say thank you for what you do and thank you for the excellent description and account you've given tonight of the situation in many of the areas. It's very either late at night or early in the morning, depending which way you look at it in my neck of the woods at the moment, almost 3 a.m. So I apologize in advance if I'm a, a little vague, but regarding what you were saying about places like Zaporizhia, my brain got into first World War II mode and I was thinking about aviation. I don't know why I was thinking about Hawker Tempests and Hawker Typhoons, but then I got into Vietnam and I started to think about A-37 and I started to think a bit further closer in time to where we are now to A-10s and I know there's been a lot of discussion about that. But I just wondered, you spoke a lot about the drones. I just wondered if you thought there might be, if in any of the, not theatres, but any of the, the areas that you've spoken of, that there would in any way be a, a change in the nature of the game if attack or counterinsurgency type aircraft were involved in, in, a, in any rule whatsoever. It's a very brief question, but, but that's it. I just wondered if there is a role for, for those there. Thank you. Thank you. So it's a good question. I actually had this talk with a couple guys there. It's the issue is that the aircraft fly real low. I've been buzzed by aircraft that were maybe I'm on the third story of a building and there may be another 40 feet up. Feels like the world's ending. And that's how low they have to be because Russian air defenses are not entirely incapable. They're not great at shooting down missiles. They are pretty good at shooting down Soviet style jets. And even the SU-25, which we're seeing get shot down by shoulder-fired launchers from the 1970s, goes faster, is better armed than an A-10. And that's why they don't really use them to fly and do their little gun run where everybody on the ground cheers. Right? They fire rockets from a distance and they go away, and then the rockets show up because the rockets are a lot harder to shoot down with a missile. That's what I'm seeing more is the nature of things. Uh, helicopters have their own sort of air launched artillery rocket type thing, which they do actually have a system for, but it's really just more mobile rocket artillery than anything else. The issue is that if it's big, it gets swatted down unless you have total air dominance or air superiority, even which neither side really has. And the Russians do have a larger, what's called a beyond visual range capability than the Ukrainians. And a lot of these MiG 31s that they keep putting up which they fly up, everybody in the country gets an air alert, they land, everybody breathes a little bit. It happens every day, you get used to it. 
It's a, they carry not just the Kinsault Wu Scared Hypersonic that gets swatted down just the same, but they also carry very long range anti-air missiles. And earlier in the war, when Ukraine was being a little more flippant with, we're going to get into an engagement, the Russians would go, okay, cool. You're on our radar, have 20 missiles. And they would just kill entire flights. And the Ukrainians learned, okay, this isn't a place we can compete right now. In the future with F-16s, who knows? My word of caution is that it is going to be true for Abrams, true for F-16s, true for whatever Mecha Godzilla people send. There's no super weapons for this. There's things that change the tide of battle, but you need them in quantity because you're dealing with an industrial scale war. And at the end of the day, if you put all of your trust in like this one thing is going to fix it, then when it doesn't work, you're going to be left brokenhearted versus, oh, we now have attackums that have been publicly disclosed for the first time which means we now know we can reach out further, which gives us these opportunities. That's a positive rather than saying, oh, we only have a hundred of them. For instance, we should have a thousand. Don't let perfect be the enemy of good. And the same thing is true for things like air support where, yeah, an A-10 would be great. It'd be a lot better than desperately trying to fly a drone 20 kilometers into a moving vehicle where you'd miss a part of the time, but one's cheaper and easier to do. And when you miss with one, it's not the end of the world, but when an A-10 gets shot down in flames, it's a bigger deal. So it, the issue is the air defense is just so prevalent that you have to find ways around it and flying directly over it, as we've seen just today, in Avdivka doesn't work too well. Hopefully that answers your question. That's again, my perspectives. I'm not an aviation buff. I don't know half of those planes you talked about, but from my... Thank you very much. Well, that's you my question. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Let's go to Fleck. <clears throat> yeah, thanks, language. Yeah, I remember listening to conversations. I agree with you about Abdika, first of all, because speaking to a few guys, Abdika, Marinka, they, they've been a nightmare throughout the whole of the war. And, and people have picked up on Bakhmut and Zaporizhia area, but those two areas have been, well, they've been getting it pretty hard. I also remember um, when Bakhmut was, under siege, shall we say, for want of a better word, from the Russians, that that people on the ground, and I'm talking just on the ground, were wanting to leave, you know, for good reason, because it was a bloody nightmare. But there was a strategic purpose to holding the ground, as you may or may not be aware of. I'm sure you are, though. Uh, and I think people on the ground will always view things from the reality of what's happening on the ground because they're at the forefront of shit, really. Blood and guts, freezing, fear, looking over your shoulder all the time, always being aware of your surroundings. That's what war's about. And, and people on the ground won't have a good view about it. But standing back a bit, and I, I listen to a lot of what the general staff say, and I follow some of their open briefings and some other stuff I come across as well. And there's always a, a strategic goal to many things. You mentioned one key one, a political one. It was only a few weeks ago. Zelensky said that we're going to take three cities and Bakhmut is one of them. And I know you covered that a little bit earlier on when you were covering things. Yeah. Would you agree, and this is putting you on the spot to some degree, or would you agree that Zaluzny, um, as the general in command, knows what he's doing? He's aware 
of the political importance of having some form of win. He's aware of the morale importance of having some form of win. And would you trust in him and his way that he's managed the war at the moment? Unequivocally, 100%. Of all the people there, you talk to soldiers and Sumner Oscar used to really be a fan of when he was trying to motivate people. He was like, do it for Zelensky. And they'd be like, yeah, uh, I don't know about that. He's just a guy. I didn't vote for him. We'll do it for Poroshenko. And they're like, oh, I didn't vote for him too. And then you get like a political argument between the troops. But they're like, all right, do it for his illusion. They're like, all right, cool. It's the, the general is respected. He seems very competent and very capable. I've obviously never met him. But of the, the officers that I know who have met higher level command staff, the, the ones who meet him and his staff, they don't walk away and be like, he was okay, but they're like, this was solid. I learned something today and I feel better because he's just, he's very fixed. He goes, this is my job. My job is war. This is my task. I'm going to accomplish it. Let's figure it out. And maybe that's just how he portrays himself. And there's a reality I'm not aware of. But I have yet to find somebody in all of Ukraine who goes, oh, I like Solushny, but so, man, I have traveled quite a bit and talked with quite a lot of people and everybody, plus everybody else always has an opinion. This guy's cheating on his wife. This guy is a gambler. This guy's this, guy's that, this guy took my food, whatever. Nobody says that about Solushny. Nobody goes on about how, oh, he's sitting in this high castle or. He's a politician or he doesn't care or why did he do X, Y, Z? They just go, all right, cool. There's individual commanders under him that are still higher in rank that are in command of certain areas that get flack. But as Zeluzhny himself, I'm not saying this as a extravagant example, but quite literally, I have never heard somebody there say something negative about him. And it's not because he has a cult of fear suppressing him. I'm glad you said that. Because I, I've been picking up on all the messaging from the general staff. You're right in what they say about Saperisha. In the first two or three days, they had to abandon maneuver warfare because of the defenses that were in place. But what Zaluzny did say, and along with Budanov, um, and what they do say is that we are very confident of achieving. And what Zelensky said this week, and bear this in mind, and, and you're right, the public have different opinions. They trust the army more than they trust the politicians, as I'm sure you're well aware of it. And certainly to the guys I speak to, you know, that's of the same view as well, because they still bound about corruption, because that is still an issue they got to address. But Zelensky, after he'd had his meetings with Sertsky uh, and uh, Zelensky, said he, he can now see a clearer path to victory. And I'll remind you what Zaluzny said going back a few months ago. He said, our plan had to change, but we still have a plan that will guarantee us victory. Would you agree with his view? I don't know. That 10,000 foot view, I believe there is a plan. I believe a lot of it is a lack of supplies. My focus is obviously on medicine. So I'm always going to be predisposed towards that. And then use it as this is ultimately a war being fought by men and women sitting in holes with rifles, right? It's, there are tanks occasionally, and there are drones and there are satellites and all kinds of fancy things. But at the end of the day, it's somebody pulling a trigger on an AK or an artillery gun to kill somebody a hundred meters away or 10 kilometers away and sending more resources 
to them to allow them to accomplish their tasks will have a more significant effect in figuring out ways to make it easier and safer for them to accomplish their tasks and survive accomplishing their tasks. That's, I think, sometimes that communication gets broken down when you start looking at it in terms of like large quantities of forces. But we're not dealing with, really, we're not dealing with combined off war. We're dealing with more positional warfare. And as a consequence, you can either rant and rave and say, this is terrible. Everything they're doing is wrong. If the United States was there, it'd be like this and go, we're not. And they don't have the United States arsenal behind them. The first time in a long time, they got the amount of artillery shells that they actually asked for at the time and place that they asked for them. If they had all the artillery they needed, every battle would look like what we're seeing in Abdivka with thousands of Russian soldiers being killed or wounded a day. But it's not. And so until those really boring but crucial logistic components are addressed, then the plans themselves become more challenging. Then you have a more complex thing of morale and whatnot because there are guys who just sit in the trenches all day and they staged five assaults this year and all of them failed. So they're like, why am I getting out of this trench again? So how do you compel them to say, no, this time things are going to be different. They're not stupid. They're going to think it's like black adder from World War One. They're going to go, wow, we tried this plan 27 times. Surely it'll work now. They go, absolutely not. And these aren't robots. So they go, look, man, I don't want to do that. I, I watched it in HD last time. I don't want to do it myself. So you have to find a way to say, there is a reason this is going to change. And it's not just World War One style of, we have a good plan and you're not entitled to know it. It's, this is going to change. Here are the resources. Here's your motivation. And here's why we're not just throwing your lives away. But you have to have those resources to make the motivation to convince them first. So it's one of those things where it comes down to just the beans, bandages, and bullets of a industrial scale war, which thankfully the world had forgotten, but unfortunately is now being forced to relearn. And we are found wanting in a number of positions in that sense. That's the reality, isn't it? I'm glad that you can have it actually perceive it on that way. Because you're right, sometimes soldiers do need to be remotivated. You may or may not know Ukraine still has some former reserves. And I know they've reallocated, as you've just confirmed, reallocated resources to Avdivka. They moved the 47th over, certainly at least a battalion anyway. We'll tell you. Yeah. Sorry? Well, it's, it was a cruel joke. Yes, they moved elements over that have been exhausted by the battles in the South. Okay. Yeah. But the biggest thing is it's not even the troops, it's the artillery. Having the ability to do what the Russians were doing where, okay, it moves in the air, we kill it with artillery. It, we can see it, it makes it a very challenging war, especially when you're a bunch of Russian penal colony prisoners with AKs and you're told, go take that hill, you're going to be fine. It just doesn't usually work out that great. I've seen very clearly what it looks like on the other side of that. And it's brutal. And you lose a company in hours. You just hundred guys are gone, right? Look, there you go. So you need to find a way to change that. Having artillery, manpower is crucial, but having the artillery and the munitions to support them is more crucial because what's, think about it like, they about two old Wesley unslings, right? Staring each other down and down. If they're both there doing the little quick draw action, it's going to be a 50-50 split, right? You get into a trench, it's hell. And there's a very good chance that you do everything right, or you just get unlucky and that's it. Versus you see a guy on a drone screen moving five, 10 kilometers away. So you lob some 120 millimeter at him 
and his vehicle explodes, the chance of you being injured in that case correspondingly much more minimal. So finding a way to conserve the human resource of the soldiers, which is incredibly important, and as given the average age is increasing in the ZSU, which is a problem, is something that needs to be resolved, then you have to find ways to do it so you don't end up in a positional war where you say, ah, the Russians are sending 200 conscripts. We're just going to have 100 guys with rifles to beat them up. You got to work smarter, not harder. And I, I do hope, and this is a bit of a sideline here on top of this all existing rant, that they are able to move more of the people who have signed up for the police, some of whom who are just there to do a job, and I have a lot of respect for it, but I trained some of the police officers who were the laziest, unmotivated sacks of shit I've ever had the misfortune of encountering. And people who would make sure that their, their personal hygiene was the most important thing to them that day, whether they had their makeup on or they had their fancy little uniform thing on or what have you. And then, okay, oh, you have to go do this work. No, I'm not going to do it. What do you mean you're not going to do it? That's why you're here. That's the point of today. No, I don't feel like it. Okay. And these are people who are generally in better health and better physical conditioning younger than those who are serving at the front lines who are correspondingly much more motivated and much more willing to learn and practice and actually better themselves. So it's been an open secret for a long time in Ukraine that if you want to get out of joining the military, join the police. And there's been some considerable enmity about that. The Ukraine government has started making statements that, eh, you're not going to be exempt from mobilization just because you're serving in a police accountant role or you're doing traffic tickets on the streets. So keep, is it, am I saying that they all deserve to be conscripted? No, but it would be nice to see a more equitable sense of younger, healthier people in the trenches rather than perhaps their parents. But that's a much larger and divisive topic, especially when you get into things like how long should they be mobilized? That's why there's protests across Ukraine about that right now. Because if you've been in the military, you volunteered day one, and it's been a year and a half, and you don't even know when you can leave. It's not, oh, I just have to stay here for three years. You don't have that. Foreigners do, which is why there is, frankly, some very justified frustrations towards foreign fighters, because a lot of them just break their contract whenever they want and go from unit to unit or leave, and the Ukrainians can't do that. So it's all well and good for us to tell them, oh, you just got to fight to the end of the war. But when you're going on month 16, you haven't seen your wife and kids in 10 months, and you go, hey, man, how much longer? When do I get leave? We don't know. What do you mean you don't know? I've been serving for a year. When do I get to go home? When does this end? What if the war goes on 10 years? Do I have to sit in the trench for 10 years? Having just the knowledge of you will get two, week, uh, two weeks out of every six months to go home makes a huge difference. And some units do that very well, others don't. But finding a way to conserve those human resources, supply them via equipment, via morale, via medical care, and all the other such things is frankly going to be the most critical step to realizing whatever plan the Zaluzny and the others come up with, regardless of whether it's big or small. Because if you don't have those things, then you just have a bunch of unmotivated guys getting into trenches they don't really want to be in on getting shot by a lucky dude around the corner who's just holding the trigger down. And that doesn't get us anywhere. Again, in my hypothesis. No, I agree. What? <laughs> Sorry, yeah. what? We have language. I know you probably don't. I don't know if you know this. But you can log in and speak on spaces now in on a computer, but you can't raise your hand. So it's Heimar's, oh. his, it's Heimar's time sent a message saying that he would like to ask a question, but he cannot raise his hand. Sure. Yeah, go right ahead. Shoot a DM. There's a couple, actually. 
I know it's been just ramping on and on, but thanks for presenting. Gosh, it's great to hear from you again. I really like your straightforward. You don't pull any bullshit. Both sides. Like two questions are stagnation for the winter on both sides. Looks like that's going to be it. You agree? I suspect so. I think outside of missile strikes and whatnot, you're going to see stagnation because it's very hard to fight in the cold. Yep. There were any extreme time. When I was there, it was very hot, right? Uh, by and large, it wasn't cold when I arrived in the winter, at least not to my perception of it. And as you're above freezing generally, it's doable. And hopefully when you're wearing all the hot gear then, or your armor, then you can feel that as well. And the so, heat will pass out. In the extreme cold though, and once it, if it does get down, I think there's projections it should be a cold winter. On a wet winter, it just, when you're cold and wet, it just saps all of your motivation. And it makes everything so much harder. And again, you really want to ride on top of a vehicle in the snow when it's cold and wet, and you already don't really want to be there. It, it just, it's something that adds just a little bit more weight to every step you take. And I think that will be a challenge outside of sufficient external motivation and reason to be motivated. Are the Russian soldiers ready for winter? Do they have the kit? That kit is gone. Generally, some of them are quite good and quite capable, but there are guys there who are just wearing things that looks like they made themselves in the penal colony. It is pretty terrible in a lot of cases. And the Ukrainian side, I'm assuming, is much better? It's not much better, but it's better in a lot of ways. The interesting thing is, so, and I don't know what it's like on the Russian side, because I obviously was never invited there, but on the Ukrainian side, this is a war down the street from your local grocery store. This is a war down the street from your house, right? That is a common refrain. Like you would be 10 kilometers back from the trenches and you'd be going to a little bodega and you, that's where the soldiers get their food. They go, oh, I'm going to get a bunch of energy drinks and I'm going back to the trenches now in my car. It just, ha it's, you're not, this isn't a fight in the broad fields of France and Germany where everything is war all the time. This is a fight around a civilian population. This is a fight in the towns and the villages right. and the areas outside of them. So guys will go back and forth, which means they still have access to the Ukrainian economy, which is very digitized as a phenomenal mail service that can get you anything you want anywhere in the country within a day or two. So people, you end up with a mixture of their family saying, hey, we raised this money, we're getting you these things. There's a lot of crowdfunding and support that happens in Ukraine from NGOs, political, religious organizations, what have you. And then you also have guys going, hey, I've been sitting here in the trench and my feet are cold and they're wet and they're miserable, but Oleg down the line pulled this really cool invention that he saw on Rosetka. I'm going to order it on my phone. I'll have it here in a week. So you end up with this sporadic sort of thing where there are guys who had really useful things and you had guys who had things that were really wild. It's, we had a dude who was an old guy in his fifties, he had a revolver. I was like, what do you have a revolver for me? And it's just like, it's called a flow burk gun. It's just like little, shoots like a tiny little BB basically. And nobody really knew why he had it. the officer. After, I think we blew his cover after we were like, why do you have a revolver? The officer took it away from him. But uh, I hope he got it back. But you have guys who will spend their money on stupid shit like that. And then you have guys who say, hey, we're all cold. We're all getting these overboots and we need 10 more 
Freud group, who is incredibly competent, they said, this is what we need. This is the problem. Let's pool our resources and resolve it. And then they are much more capable than the guy who decided to spend all his money on vintage Soviet pornography or whatever. Sure. In my mind, it's going to be a lot of drones in the winter and whoever interdicts the other one's supply lines the most, probably going to be the master of the winter. It sucks for sitting there and then, especially as the other guys have artillery on you, it drops from around. And I think you'll see people are left in dust and violence. Because most of these fights don't go until the last mouse. Yep. I've sat behind drones. I've flown them. I'm not a combatant. But I've sat in places that have them on the walls. And I see you got, you don't go and fight until the very end. Like, motivation is low. People don't want to die. And sitting in an extension hearing gunfire around the corner is a terrifying experience. And if that comes after artillery just blew your world to hell and back, it's an even more scary experience. And if you mix that all with the fact that you've been mildly hypothermic for a week and your feet are wet, maybe I'm just going to leave. Maybe this is the excuse I need to go back to a building. There's a lot of that. And however, it all goes back to you need to have the resources to affect that change in emotion and morale on the enemy so that they leave. Because ultimately, that's the goal. It's not to kill everybody. It's to make them leave. However, the place you have to scare them into leaving. And if all you do is shoot a single bullet at them every week, they'll be miserable, but they don't need to leave. You drop the bomb on them, they're going to go, wow, I'm reconsidering my current location. And they go. Yeah. All right. So we have a couple more hands. Again, I I don't know how things have changed in the last several months. So let me know if there's things that are new. No, that's good. That's good. I just, I got a message saying, hi, Mars wanted to talk. So I appreciate that. And I don't know how much time you were planning on and going, so you just let us know when you need to go, and and that's fine. We'll make it work with language. I appreciate it very much. We can keep going. I'm happy, and this is very good for me for other reasons, so I appreciate being here. Let's continue. Wonderful. Thank you so much. And you know what? I am just going to interject really quick, if you don't mind, language. What you said about minds really hit my heart. And... Part of that is because right now we are actually raising funds to send some demining equipment to the emergency services of Ukraine. And so I just, hearing language say that one of the scariest things being over there was the mines just made me think of the funds that we're raising to be able to send some um, metal detector, mine detectors over to Ukraine. So. I just wanted to mention that quick. It is the first tweet in the nest. If anybody wants to take a look, there is a link there. So thanks for letting me interject that uh, language. I think your hands were Clyde, Chris, Incognito, and Dryfly. Thank you. Language, in your opinion, is the potential left bank of the Dnipro offensives a chance to get to warmer weather to fight during the winter? I don't foresee that necessarily being the case because that whole area is rather temperate. I think it's a potential. My high, my grand scale novel impersonator impression is that it is going to be much easier to sever supply lines from the northern part of the Crimean Peninsula so as to deny access via that and airstrikes towards the highway leading to the Zaporizhia region through Mariupol and then say, hey, we're not fighting in three of my fields anymore. We come up, we're outside the nuclear power plant. You can choose to stay there or you can choose to leave. Oh, you've left. We're continuing up the road to Melitopol and we're following the natural curvature of the earth. We're following roads that have not been mined to hell and back. 
And meanwhile, we have people sitting pretty and blowing the hell out of Crimea every day until you decide to leave. That would be my Tom Clancy novel hypothesis if everything went swimming. Whether that'll happen or not, we'll see. But it makes a lot more sense to me than just applying face to wall through all of Zaporizhia and all the defenses. Go around. Even if going around means you have to go a thousand kilometers to the west. Okay, thank you. Go ahead, Chris. Thank you, Prince. Yeah, that made, that made a lot of sense. Language. Language, I was just going to say to you that we've been working on getting some medical supplies out there, we being me and Jenny Mokienko. And so one of the things that I was doing a little bit was I was just checking some sort of theories with medical people that were coming up on here, language. So just quickly to, to say to you that one of the things that was discovered here, over here in the UK, um, my wife's like a matron at a private school and, and I was like basically saying to her, Hey, you got any medical supplies at the school that you could send us and that, because we're collecting all this stuff, and then we're going to send it over to Ukraine. Right. And she said, yeah, she said, but you should have asked me two weeks ago, Chris, because that was when we started the new term and that, and I've replaced everything. And usually I just end up like chucking the old stuff out, the out of date stuff out. So I know shit anyway. Okay. Whatever. Okay. Let me have what you got then. So, so anyway, she, so she brings me some like bag zone, but I'm now I've got this thing in my head, right. You know, that people are chucking all of this stuff out because they just need to replace it because it's inverted commas out of date. Yeah. So my, my, so that led the, the questions I've been asking people and what I wanted to ask you is basically this idea of sending stuff that is out of date, according to the like, health and safety regs and all that blah here, right. But could be good for Ukraine. Right. So the feedback I got language was look, Chris, just send it. We'll decide what we'll use or not use type of thing. Would you agree with that? Would you have any comments on that? Conditionally, yes. And it's very high. I'm going to come down a little bit on it. I think it's a good idea in theory. Right? And it depends specifically on the medical supply. So everybody strap in, right? If you're dealing with pharmaceuticals, there are differences between pharmaceuticals, which become less effective over time and pharmaceuticals that become ineffective over time. There's also pharmaceuticals that can become potentially toxic over time if enough time has elapsed what i will say if you've got them send them i'm not i when i was actually helping 3xr and i love them to death they had i they'll never say it but they have an issue with very well-meaning people who will send them stuff that they don't categorize and they just say hey you guys need this and it ends up and they go well, what the heck we well, now we have to organize it all right and there were some very kind people in poland who were essentially just stealing pharmaceuticals from dead people's rooms in nursing homes and saying, hey, they're not using them anymore. They're getting thrown away anyway. Let's put them in a trash bag and send them. And so I spent a day sorting through that. Don't do that, please. If you're going to send things, have them organized, have them labeled, label them in English. People can read the English there and then send them and then let people determine. Because if it goes, hey, it, it makes it a lot easier than the people to say, hey, here's a bunch of stuff. This is a bunch, this is a bag of pills labeled old people's medicine. This is morphine. Why are you giving me pills of morphine? It doesn't work. And soldiers, if you just go, here's pills, they'll be like, oh, the soldiers, they're paid pills for whatever reason. They'll give themselves injections all day long. 
You're like, hey, man, this is an aspirin. They go, whoa, buddy, you trying to kill me? So if it's, they're not exactly going to go looking deep into what these words mean are. Versus if you say, hey, here is a thousand tablets of one year out of date acetaminophen, someday. Somebody will use that. But if it's just, here's a bunch of pills that are sitting in a bag and we have no idea what they are, people are going to go get around to it and it'll sit and it won't get. So as long as you notate it for pharmaceuticals, that's okay. And the one secondary to that for other things like medical supplies, and this, it doesn't, this isn't as fun. It isn't as sexy as putting your hands on and sending it. I get that a hundred percent. This is a mistake I made because I showed up, I said, I got to bring these things. And it turned out that it's a country of 40 million people. Like they have an economy. They have a very capable digital economy that you can buy things on. And because their economy didn't collapse, you can buy them for cheap. So in some cases, the cost to ship things from say the UK to Ukraine for basic medical supplies. I'm not talking about things like high quality tourniquets and chest seals, although there are some domestic opportunities for those there. It makes more sense to just buy them there. And I'm happy if people are interested that the main websites are called olx.ua, Rosetka, that's R-O-Z-E-T-K-A. If you're interested, shoot me a DM. Uh, and then prom.ua, P-R-O-M. That's like their Amazon and eBay analogs there. And they'll have it wherever you need to go in a day or two. So if you have somebody that you're working with or a unit that you're working with, people you say, hey, we have a Nova Postal Box. You go, okay, what do you need? Oh, we need bandages. Okay, I can buy them for 10 cents a pop and have them mailed to you in two days. Or I can spend five pounds in shipping and two weeks to get them from the UK. I'm accomplishing the same thing, but one is faster and cheaper. And you're using the resources locally available. That was, frankly, how I was able to make the money last there, much better than I had before. Whereas if I was buying everything from overseas, I would have gone broke faster than I did. In summary, pharmaceuticals, label them first. I encourage you to consult with a medical professional before you send them. Please don't send opiates. Uh, don't get involved in the ketamine smuggling ring. I promise it's not going to go anywhere good. But label them first, figure out like, it, and then send them. As long as they're labeled, they're organized, and then they go, people will use them. Hospitals will need them, uh, antibiotics especially. Uh, um, though there are, if you're really interested, ways to purchase them in Ukraine by also a website called tabletki.ua, which works great and is also usually cheaper. But uh, yeah, I'm happy to talk more about it. Just, there's a huge amount of indigenous resources there that a lot of people are not necessarily aware of, not because you guys are doing something wrong or you're stupid or anything, but you're just not aware of them, right? Like, why would you know what the third most popular website in Ukraine is? Who, who would know that, right? And then you get there and you talk to some guy who's a private friend. He goes, oh, why would I go to the store to buy medicine? I have it shipped to my house. Here's the website. You go, oh my God, I had no idea this was a thing. And so I'm just hoping to communicate that to you as well, that there's a lot of ways to skim this game. Yeah, really useful language. Thank you. Yeah, obviously things like, I'm assuming you'd agree, like things like bandages and stuff like that don't. Yeah, but you can also, yeah, if you have significant quantities of them, if you have good Western pressure bandages, those are good because the Soviet style ones that get sent in the issued first aid kits are dog shit and they're useful for toilet paper and pillow and not much else. Not in that order, hopefully. But it's a bandages and stuff that can go. IFAC pouches, there's inventive ways. There's a lot of ways to pinch a penny in Ukraine and still deliver a quality product. And I find that collaborating and just making sure you have people on the receiving end who know what they're looking for. And they say, hey, 
we're looking for X, Y, Z because reasons one, two, three works a lot better than just here's a bunch of supplies. Cause I've been in warehouses where medical supplies just sat for months because people didn't know what to do with them. And doctors just come through and pick through them. And because things aren't organized, they're in these giant, essentially pallet sized soft storage bags. Guys just like tears through them, take all the stuff and leave the rest. And then it becomes an unusable mess versus you send it over and you say, here's what it is. Here's a list of the things in the box and here's just written down on an Excel sheet and I printed it out or whatever. That stuff will be used in a day. I guarantee it. Like just having a little bit of communication, you'll have people fighting to be your recipient because it's a lot easier when the doctors who are stressed don't have to wonder, oh my God, I have to go play scavenger hunt now to figure out, am I getting bandages or surgical tools today? As opposed to every time he sends me something, I know what it is within 30 seconds of opening the box. And if I don't need it, I know 20 people who do, and I can get about my day. But you do that, you'll get thank you cards. Okay. Really useful. Thanks. Both of you. Let's do long card Nico and then drive by. Actually, real quick. I know that there were a couple questions that had flown in via DM. So I'll just hit those super quick. And I don't know if uh, Heather or the others got some too. But um, I'll try to ease back into this. So I'll apologize yeah. if I didn't necessarily respond to all of them. Thank you guys for the kind words. All of you, that's very nice. There was one. I'm so sorry. It will come back in time, but until then, Heather, do you have any messages in your inbox or can we go to incognito? I have one message who is extremely happy that you are back on and, and looks forward to hearing you again on the space. So yes, that is the message that I have gotten so far. And I agree with them 100%. Although the positive messages are much appreciated and I thank you guys all for it. They mean quite a lot. Let's go to incognito and drive by. Hey, thanks language. Um, I have been, I'm going to echo the, uh, commenter in, uh, Prince's, uh, DM thread. It is so great to hear, have you back. Also, I want, I, I need to express this when I, when you first disappeared from MR, I didn't know why, cause I had, I was busy and only in intermittently listening. And when I learned that it was because you had volunteered to go to Ukraine to be a combat medic. I was gobsmacked, amazed, and ever so grateful to have ever heard anything you'd ever contributed. And that I think I can speak for uh, hundreds of us by reiterating that. My, I have a question though, too, and this is a really day class A question and probably should be the last thing that you have to respond to tonight, but, um, I'm ahead of dry fly, so I'm going to take my chance now. Did I, did you say a few minutes ago, when you were talking about uh, somebody spending money on something or other, or, and I might've misheard this and I was moving around the kitchen. So there's a really good chance I did. Did you say, or vintage Soviet pornography? Cause if you said that, that is the single most horrifying concept I have ever heard. That is, okay, is, well, this is a funny story. I'm sorry. I'm no, no, it's a funny story and the kids can close the so I, we were living, the way we saved a lot of money with this one simple trick, it's called living on base with the soldiers and eating their food, which breakfast sucks, lunch, hit or miss, dinner, usually quite good. So it's a base that had been bombed and people had left, they came back, we had come back with them. Um, and so things are being repaired, right? There's no plumbing, right? We, we got a toilet because we were lucky. And then he, one of my guys was a jackass and 
they locked the toilets there. And I didn't realize that that was something that we should do. I'm the jackass in this story. And so the soldier was like, ooh, toilet. And they promptly broke it. So then we had no toilets and it was just outhouses. And that's just, you dig a hole and you build a little squatty potty over it. Now, in one of the blown out buildings nearby, and these are apartment buildings, some enterprising young soldat decided that he was feeling rather lonely and he couldn't sit outside with the other quantity of soldiers on his phone and do whatever on the limited Starlink, slowing down to watching their videos by PowerPoint speed. So he found some black and white vintage Soviet pornography from what it seemed like the 1970s and papered it up on the inside of the outhouse, which was hysterical. Until guys would come to the base, they were training, and then they would leave their units. Somebody took Miss, Miss Harkey 1972 with them and the rest of her sisters, and people were furious for two days. Uh, objectively, morale suffered on the base, and people were pissed. They're like, it was this guy. I can't believe it. I didn't realize. I thought at first it was a joke. I was like, okay, guys. And then some dude was like, oh, I'm going to fight him. I'm going to fucking kill him. Go, oh, oh, buddy. You're doing all right. And uh, relief comes in a lot of ways. One of my guys, who's a really great dude, an Aussie, an older guy, he, he went and bought like five Playboy magazines in town and just started handing them out to the soldiers. And then after that, they like just knock them into their barracks and gave them a party. So boys will be boys, even in a war zone. Whether you choose to believe that's appropriate behavior or not, I, I won't comment on that. But it is a hopefully funny story of it was very funny in a really morbid and, and halloweenish kind of way but thank you i'm glad i asked because like i i had i was thinking i must have misheard that did he say photography no he said pornography it's all black and white. anyway okay they're actually quite black, to be honest and that it's very, all very black I and white i didn't you know, know that the but soviet we, union with their putatively high moral standards uh, actually promoted that sort of thing but thank you uh I was shocked too, to when I went to use the job. Thank you. I will let Dryfly speak. I'm sure he has a much more important question than what I just posed. Thank you. Sure. To you, bro. No, I can't top that. That's pretty amazing. I've seen some pretty awful pornography when I was a kid in the factories I worked in. That was 1960s, upper Midwest, but I can only imagine what Soviet pornography was like. My question for you is you've had your eyes on the ground. You've seen again what's going on. So I'm going to ask you a question about that empty reservoir. Been a lot of scuttlebutt here about could the Ukrainians cross it? Could they not cross it? Would it be a, uh, would it be, would it be possible to do it in winter? Could it be done even not in winter? We've had a lot of discussions going back from the first few days after the thing was emptied out. I don't know if I've told you in the past when we were talking on some of the other, uh, you know, uh, your other language learner sessions, but I've lived around a number of the big dams in the upper Midwest and in the Southeast. So like the Columbia, or excuse me, the Tennessee river and some of those I've seen reservoirs empty out and the bottoms can get surprisingly solid and easy to drive on, but there's still pockets of water, but a, a smart and intelligent group could pro possibly cross them. You've seen them with your eyes. You've seen the soil. You've described the environment. And I'm familiar with the black soil of that area. It's not the same as, as the southeast U.S. where you're going to get more gravel and clay and a little harder packed uh, bottom. What would you say the condition is on the bottom now? Have you seen it in the last month or two? And then the other question is, if it froze, do you think it would be solid enough to support vehicles just from what you've seen. And I'll listen. I don't believe so. 
So I never really went down to the river. It's, it's still actively a combat zone, but there is still a river flowing there. Like it didn't all just disappear, right? Like the reservoir shrunk, but it's not, there is still, this is not just a stagnant pool of water that was made coming down from the mountains. This is part of the largest river system in Ukraine, which is still operating. The Dnipro River continues to flow. And so you're not dealing with just a tiny amount of water. You're dealing with a fairly sizable river, which is now in the middle of essentially and I imagine at this point it's probably less lush, but a lush valley, a very soft sloping valley, because this was a reservoir. This is what used to be beaches are now the sides of hills. So you would be going down into a valley covered in grass that you can't see to cross a river that no one has any maps or death data on and could change by the day, and then go up the other side into prepared positions I imagine that would be very challenging. I certainly wouldn't want to be along for that ride. I think it would be easier to go and try and skate across the river on a boat than hike across the former river or drive across it in a vehicle. Just because that soil, I imagine, is still rather loamy and soft. And also now you have grasses and all kinds of stuff, so you're not going to see anything. And the Russians love to mine everything. So I'd be astonished if there weren't mines there. They have airdrop mines. They don't even have to go out there. They can just, they have a little rocket and it drops these butterfly mines, essentially. They look like a butterfly, they're green. And they're toe poppers that blow the top of your foot off. And uh, they can just throw those anyway. They're designed to be thrown like by just the bucket load out of the back of the vehicle. So I imagine that with the mine there and the unfamiliar terrain and having to descend into essentially a soft valley and out the other side through a river that changes and nobody really knows, I'm sure too. it would be challenging. It's a possibility, but I don't think we're going to see the charge of the light brigade across the Dnipro reservoir area anytime soon. The reason I asked is that we talked about it. They mentioned the river. Chuck and some of the others, we've all discussed it. One of the reasons that, that it was mentioned is because yes, there is a river there, but they've got lots of bridging equipment. And the real question for me was what was the bottom like? Because you mentioned in the, the trenches, how the trenches wash out and get sandy over a year. That happens to bottoms too. The river bottoms I used to, to traverse as a kid in North Alabama and Tennessee, where the Tennessee River went. The land up above, which is farmed, was loamy and sandy and clay. But you get down in the bottom where the water runs and the water sits, that stuff, all that organic material kind of washes out and gets sandy and gravelly. And that's what I was wondering if you've seen it and what it looks like. But what you're describing, if it's really still swampy and mucky, yeah, they're not going to get across it. That's what I was asking. Thank you. Yeah, it, uh, I, I've gone swimming in some of the lakes and rivers, and it's, it's really just mucky. And there's all out. Again, now we're going to need an ecologist or something or whatever, uh, a marine biologist. There's a lot of plant matter and a lot of algae in these water systems. What that happens when that dies and stuff, that was a constant. There's mud and there's algae. And even the bottom of the lakes isn't solid on the sides. It's just, it's this expansive pool of mud because again, the soil is loamy and soft. And I would imagine, again, I have not been down to the Nebro Reservoir, well, I pretend to, then it would be the same way at the bottom. Might've run out of hands. It got quiet. Language. This has been amazing. I don't know if Will, Will is one of our, one of our newer co-hosts. You've been here for a while. Will, he is from the land down under, but Will, how are you today? 
I'm well, yeah. I heard language learner way back uh, when I was first in the space, I think last July, August of 2022, but, but it took a while for me to come up and uh, speak. And uh, so I've heard language learner, but I haven't heard him for a long time. And uh, I actually cheek off language learner from my original work here as the work experience guy who lives in the right time zone, because I tend to do what you do, language learner, which is walk my way around the map to try to pe update people on what's going on in the various locations. Now, I have a question for you uh, based on the reads of the maps and the fact that things have not moved on the Orkiv axis much at, at all in the last few weeks. And I want to get your impression um, in there and in Avdivka on whether or not these Packham strikes on the helicopter bases have made a significant difference or not. I 100% agree with you that uh, there is no magic silver bullet here and uh, have been banging on for basically a year on what is really necessary here is millions of dollars of bullets for everything every month, which is boring. But uh, as we've seen in relation to the, the historical through this war, artillery advantage, a huge artillery shell advantage and tube advantage from Russia, that being whittled down with far more accurate fire and better counter-battery counter timing fire has, has taken it down to what appears somewhere close to parity in certain locations on the map, like this Orkiv axis. Now things have, as you say, slowed down. Uh, Russia uh, threw a lot more uh, of uh, some Storm Z battalions, it looks like, into the Orkiv axis to back up the 7th and the 76th VDV there, there. They've rotated the 8th, 10th out and put the 71st and 70th motor rifle divisions to try to hold the line there. And the weather is getting, obviously, more difficult for significant advances. In relation to this, the bite and hold approach that they're using in there, and you had noted that the, the drone activity of... Russia has picked up in that area significantly and also caused a slowdown because anything that moves gets hit, which is what we also see from the Ukrainian side uh, on Russia, if you listen to the Russian telegram channels as well. But the at the beginning of the Avdivka offensive that Russia started a couple of three weeks ago and along the Sorokiv axis, they were making a significant more use of close air support using helicopters in particular. And I noticed the anti-tank guided missiles being fired uh, over at Donetsk toward Avdivka early in that session. And then straight after that, the, the first attack and strikes on Berdyansk and in Luhansk to take out the, to take out a significant portion damage or injure or damage or destroy attack helicopters. Do you see that has had a significant uh, advantage in the short term in relation to uh, being able to defend in Avdivka and move any armored fighting vehicles up at all? Or has the higher use of, of close air support in the form of SU-25s that we now see are, are being lost, do you think they've totally replaced that and that Russia still enjoys a level of close air support that Ukraine obviously does not have. Do you think that is making a difference in either of these fronts? I think it's significant. The long range beam riding missiles that Russia can use from their helicopters are something that Ukraine has very limited counterplay against. And that caused quite a bit of havoc at the beginning of the Southern counteroffensive and a lot of death because they can fire a missile at you from further than you can hit them and they can walk it right onto you. What do you do to stop that? There's not a lot because they're out of range. 
And there's a lot of hypotheses on, oh, this thing can counterplay. I never saw it, right? A lot of guys don't have a lot. And so one helicopter is bad news. Killing a bunch of them in the K-52s and whatnot is very good news, especially because they don't have a lot of them. Still have a decent amount, but they've lost. Like, I'm sure you know the stats better than me, but I want to say we're moving closer to 40, 50% of their entire stock. If not, you've already reached it. So losing that is significant. The SU-25s, they've been using them for a while. I won't pretend to know how many they have. I suspect they have more of those than they do helicopters, at least the K-52s for that matter. And uh, they're also a little more survivable. Unfortunately, uh, I've known the guys who shot them down. They've met them and they're like, oh, look at this video. We killed her. I'm like, you, sure you did, buddy. You, you wounded it. You damaged it. It's a hardy aircraft. You blew out an engine. It's not going anywhere, but it probably isn't dead. Or you didn't kill the pilot, right? It's, it's not going anywhere, but yeah, he'll, he's shaken up and he'll get into another one at some point. Uh, versus a helicopter, you lose your rotors, you're going to have a bad time. You lose your avionics in a helicopter. Yes, it's technically possible to auto-rotate and land it, but you're probably going to have a bad time. So having the planes, I don't think it necessarily is a way to replace what's going on with the helicopters because they've been losing aircraft the whole time. But I think losing, especially the more modern helicopters that can fire these longer-range guided missiles is a considerable loss for the Russians and it forces them to a more equal playing field. And just for reference, their language for your files, in Crimea, the Crimean Air Bases and Henichek, uh, they have 58 SU-25s, oh, sorry, 57 as of this morning. They lost another one yesterday, SU-25s in Crimea, and 58 helicopters, but 30 of those are attack helicopters. And uh, you're correct, the Onyx numbers have, have us just over halfway of all of the airframes that are KA-52s, some of which might not be serviceable, so we're, but they're definitely halfway through the stock of those that was supposedly available. Awesome. That's good to know. We'll see when, things, when the F-16s show up. We'll see how that changes things. I am, I am of mixed uh, enthusiasm on it, but I hope to be proven wrong. I think they're going to need a lot more, and we're going to have to become comfortable with images of F-16s being shot out of the sky if they want to use them in the offensive role that they would need to. But we'll see how that changes and how that changes the airspace too. But I, uh, I, I firmly live on the ground, so I, I won't pretend to be an expert. On I know I totally agree with you in, in that the F-16 is not a super weapon by any stretch of the imagination. But I think what it might do, and I'm, I'm also curious about this, the, uh, the six SU-25s that have been shot down in the last 14 days, do you know and have any more information on whether or not those were air-to-air -air kills or surface-to-air missile kills or ground fires? Because it's air for the latest three, at least, as far as I know. Okay. I, I don't know about all, but I, the last couple have just been surface-to-air. Okay, because the, they started out in a rash after they lost their attack helicopters, and I wondered if they were bringing them up close enough that the MiG-29s can now be or are now equipped with a modified mounting so that they could host AMRAM, AIM-120 AIM AMRAM missiles. And I was thinking maybe they're actually getting some of these in the air-to-air -air kills too, or they've found a better way to make sure that they have the surface-to-air capabilities closer, but protected to the front line so that when the SU-25s come in closer, they can get them. So that's interesting that, yeah, that, so it's still, would you say it's still, it looks like it's primarily still surface-to-air kills with the SU-25s. 
Yeah, I believe it's mostly surface to air kills. It's just because they don't, you don't really have the flying crane position uh, so much. So it's a lot easier to put some guys on a motorbike or a truck with a couple Strellas, the Ukrainian version of a stinger, and just have them infiltrate a couple kilometers back. And then when the plane's swinging around because he thinks he's well far away enough, you go, ha, huh, I was here the whole time. And that's easier. Or alternatively, having a larger, more pronounced system that can shoot a vertical. And I know that there's a whole bevy of those in Ukraine of various kinds. Cool. Thanks. Thank you. Aaron, I see you've come up. What would you like to ask language learner? Thanks. Thanks, language learner. So it seems from what I've seen is the Ukrainians have burnt through the 155 ammunition that they had stockpiled for this offensive. And it's going to make it hard to launch another offensive because you need artillery. It's going to be hard to stockpile again because of the rates of manufacture going into next year. So there may need to be some creative thinking when it comes to the offense. So you had that idea of moving, I think it was up around the nuclear power plant. The Australians, from what I've seen, it's very hard to mass on both sides. They get spotted and then they get hit. Do you think there's any way, because it seems like with those uh, kamikaze drones and just first-person view drones, and, and a lot of these drones are taking out even the Ukrainian tanks and the Russians, as the Ukrainians are, <coughs> building a lot of these drones. Like, if you had M1 Abrams, then you had the slinger system that can take out any drone within four to five kilometers or say four kilometers and then maybe the only thing i can see wrong with this is the higher drones or all lands or whatever if you had planes that could take them out with can can planes take those out and could that be a way to move in that direction that you were talking about without having to have overwhelming artillery as long as your tanks and everything are completely protected from drones and they don't have spotters to be able to really move their artillery, do you think that may be a way for them to move in that direction you were talking about? So the, the drones are small, right? So it's very difficult to kill them. And the guys piloting them are in trenches and bunkers and blown out buildings. So you're not going to necessarily see them, right? I just say the super cam drone, the oil lamp cams, like the larger ones, yes, but it's, I'm sure that there's inventive ways to deal with it. Most of them involve electronic warfare. But you're not going to be able to just remove the threat of Russian drone spotting for a region unless, frankly, you're also willing to blind yourself because that's how the electronic spectrum works. There's only so many frequencies in the world. And if you're going to turn some of them off for a period of time, you can't just pull some other out of your back pocket. I've been there and I've seen the messages and the Ukrainians are usually very vocal about when there is electronic warfare that we are conducting in this area. Don't fly your drone through it. Again, reply when you get this message. And every time without fail, some guy flies his drone through it and goes, oh my God, I lost it. And you, because that's just the trade-off. If you want to blind them, you are going to either have to find a very inventive solution on your own end, or you're going to blind yourself too. And as far, that's all you can really do with these small, lower flying drones. There's other things that other countries can do, but in Ukraine, your options are more minimal especially for things like quadcopter. Um, however, for larger drones, they can be shot down air-to-air um, -air, uh, systems, though it's probably easier to do it from the ground, especially because the larger recon drones are slower. They're usually prop-driven 
They're, um, you know, easier to pick up comparatively. And then the Jets would have to be quite low and quite vulnerable in order to work on them. The best thing that the Jets could do would be to like, call, call search, uh, suppression of enemy air defense, I think it is seed, and just kill the hell out of the Russian air defenses so that they can start moving their aircraft up, the Ukrainians, and they can say, hey, we can actually use our aircraft from a higher position to blow up your artillery. So now we don't have to worry about your artillery. We don't care if you can see us. Tell them you're coming. We don't care. What are you going to shoot us with? Okay, you know that we're coming at you. Oh, your artillery isn't answering. Such a shame. That would probably be the most effective way from my very limited perspective of how to use aircraft, try and solve that specific conundrum rather than trying to use it to blind the Russians wholesale. Because these are small drones. These are not big ones. These are things you can sit in the back. Yeah, I don't know if you've heard about the Australian slinger system that the Americans bought. So just shoot some... Is that the cardboard one? No, it's a, it's a, the same cannon that goes on the Apache and it's linked to, oh, forget the, Will might be a, it's a very modern radar that doesn't have to be big and turning around and it can spot any drone within about five kilometers and then shoot it down within about a bit over two to, I don't know what the range is, maybe three. And it just uses one presumably it's used shot so it doesn't need more than one shot to take any drone out but we had the the ceo on or not we <laughs> maria had this was good enough to contact him and i asked him how it would handle swarms and he seemed to think that it's pretty quick in its targeting so he wasn't going to give out any specs on it but he was said that it, it would handle a lot of drones in a short period of time, wouldn't give us specific, the specifics of how long. Uh, the Americans bought, I think they bought a hundred, but it's a, a really accurate gun as well. I think they bought 10 or maybe more that will go on the Bushmaster truck that we've got. And my hypothesis was that the Americans were buying them because they don't want to see their M1s blown up. And if you had one alongside an M1, it'll shoot down basically any drone within four kilometers with one shot, small, big, any size. So I was thinking maybe if they put those together, my, my hypothesis, we haven't seen them yet on the battlefield, but my hypothesis is that the Americans have bought them to go along with the M1s and if they were traveling together um, and you had something to take the Orlands out, then the Russians would pretty, be pretty blind for adjusting artillery as well as the tanks being protected from from suicide drones or, or first-person drones. But that was just my hypothesis. I was wondering if she th could see that working as an attack plan without needing overwhelming artillery because I don't think um, Ukraine will have the amount of artillery they did um, previous. Thanks. I think for certain drones, it's a possibility, but and you will, will swap gears and I won't let any of you get me involved in talking about what's going on in the Middle East because I have no desire to discuss it. But from a strictly specific, like relevant to this perspective, I worry and expect that we are going to see what happens as soon as the Israeli Defense Forces enter Gaza City proper when a technologically advanced military that believes it has control of the battle space and in fact has quite good technology to deal with these situations comes face to face with the threat of cheap mass producible suicide drones my 
My negative perception, having dealt with these things for a while, is that we don't have an effective solution outside of the electronic spectrum jamming and perhaps some sort of direct energy web. It's just, it's going to be very difficult. If I could be wrong, I certainly hope I am for a variety of reasons, but I think we're all in for a rude awakening because if I can take, if these things cost 500 bucks a pop and I have a guy just putting one out the window every hour to try and take a run at you, he just has to get lucky once and kill your engine. And now it's a bigger problem versus if you have all of this high tech stuff that works against very specific systems. I don't know. But again, I'm also rather cynical on this topic and it's drones are a pet fear of mine, if you will, because I've seen how effective they can be. And I don't, I'm sure that counterplay exists in DARPA and already on US military things that I don't know about. But as far as on the ground in Ukraine, I really think those systems would be better put at larger stationary posts, places that aren't going to have to deal with swarms of these drones and instead are like, oh, wow, we've got a Lancet coming in or something larger, something that's more of a threat on strategic objects, defend those, right? I think the future of warfare is going to be a lot of guys flying a lot of drones at each other and everybody else who gets the short end of the stick and didn't pass those classes gets to sit in the tin vehicles and pray that's the guys next to them that get hit instead. Very good. I am hyper cynical on this from my own experience. Fair enough. Fair enough. One other thing I've heard, and I don't know if you, you've seen it, was that one tactic of the Ukrainian was, was advised for attacking a trench system was three drones, one to put their heads down. This is on rolling in before you disembark. Another drone to go blow up in the trench and then an overhead to provide intelligence for who's where as you move through the trench. Is that what you were hearing or it varies? I didn't see anybody quite that sophisticated. I think there is a disconnect sometimes in the information that gets reported up the food chain because it's a lot easier to say soldiers exaggerate all the time, right? And there's perfect case scenarios. That would be a perfect case one, but even the most hardcore, super elite dudes, I didn't really see doing that. Their way is they would say, we kill the trench with artillery. We have a recon drone. Maybe we have our own. And then we have a guy whispering in our ear as we go through the trench that says, one to your left. Okay, he's done. That's the way to clear a trench. There's a lot of people in Ukraine teaching a lot of different ways to clear a trench. And the answer is A, artillery. And in the absence of that, have somebody overhead telling you which way to go. And then C, make sure you wore your lucky socks that day because it, it one, maybe is some other day, because we're having a real positive vibes here, I would say. We can talk about the anatomy of the trench assault and what that special kind of hell looks like, but there's no reason to depress everybody. But drones and drone reconnaissance helps, but suicide drones also help in softening it up. But frequently that's just, oh, we have this, we're going to go kill one of their cars because we could blow up two Storm Z guys and that sucks, but the Russians don't care. Or we blow up a vehicle, that's actually going to make life difficult for them. And so on and so forth. In a perfect world, yeah, you fly a tiny drone into everybody's hidey hole and either you tell them to surrender or you blow them up. In the real world, I've seen guys storm crashes with nothing. It's, uh, you have to square that circle because you also don't want to risk the drone for things like recon and whatnot if you can avoid it because those are a non-renewable resource immediately. And also there's not as many people who know how to use them effectively as you might think. Sometimes a rate limiting step is not actually the number of drones. 
but the trained operators for them. But hopefully that answers your question. I know I see BRD is up here and he hasn't been up before, so I might answer him if that's all right. Go ahead, BRD. Oh, thanks. Good. It's been a lightning couple hours language learner and good to have you back. I want to touch on, you talked about the police force and I guess lack of ambition amongst that uh, particular organization. And in your time there, I've read, and I believe Zelensky had fired pretty much everybody in the different regions that were uh, heading the recruitment offices. And uh, I think, I believe it was set up under the old Soviet Russian system and uh, had a lot of corruption. And if you paid a certain amount of money, you would not be recruited or they would uh, cruise around and just um, grab a few locals to say that you're in the army. Uh, in your time there, have you noticed any changes internally on trying to correct, uh, or, or I guess the corruption, every country has corruption, but, um, if the government there and the people are getting it right and, uh, straightening out the, all those anti-Russian, uh, Soviet systems still within Ukraine. Honestly, yes. There's a lot of, there's a long way to go and there's justified concerns from the regular Ukraine citizenry. I'm sure I'll piss off a few listeners because I also get them. Once I was there East long enough, I got embroiled in the domestic geopolitics of it. And I can see why certain people from certain regions would be more upset with the behavior of other people from certain regions, just because they say, Hey, such and such region or such and such city is being wasteful. And meanwhile, we're here in X city and we don't have water. So. There is a bit of that sometimes, I mean, Ukrainians, anybody's been, they can say, then they can be uh, opinionated about things. They can find a reason to be opinionated if they need to. Uh, but there are also justifications like, Hey, this whole thing with uh, mud tax money being spent arguably inappropriately in Kyiv and not so much Kharkiv. Kharkiv is like Philadelphia. After you get a quarter of your city blown down. You stop worrying so much about tending the gardens and you start going, no, we can't kill these SOBs. And so there's been less of it at Kharkiv compared to, say, Lviv, which I was lovely, but I never got a chance to visit, at least in this trip. So we, yeah, I, I think they're working on it. There is ways to go. I know the U.S. is making a big point of it. And I know it's almost to the point that it's, uh, it, frankly, it's not pissing off, but it's annoying some of the Ukrainian uh, diplomatic staff because they've made it clear in a couple of interviews are saying, hey, like the Americans are saying, we're giving you things, but we need to make sure that it's going where we, you say it's going. It's not just going to disappear. And this isn't a request. This is a, this is an initiative you're going to adhere to. I know that's been a, a topic of discussion in, in certain political chambers in the U.S. specifically over the last couple of weeks. Um, which hopefully is moving in a positive direction. I believe the Ukrainians are, despite bristling sometimes a little bit at the initial allegations, they're going, okay, we'll do this. And people have gotten a lot better. There is low-level corruption that I've seen, but what I find is it's frequently less a matter of, oh, I'm going to enrich myself because, huh? And it's more, oh, I know somebody else who needs this more because he's my friend and he also has a need. So why would I send it to this guy who I don't even know when my buddy over here needs it more because it's a very interconnected society. That's arguably still a form of corruption, but that can be remedied, I would argue, in a much easier and simpler way than the guy who's just trying to pocket it for himself. I only ran into the latter very rarely and didn't have good experiences with the people who were 
participating in that. They usually, uh, they usually make quite the name for themselves and end up pigeonholed into their own mill section pretty quickly. It's not a life you want to live in Ukraine these days because eventually you come across somebody who suffered because of that and things go south and ahead. Just real, there we go. Just if I can interject real quick there, BRD, uh, I guess my mic went off automatically. This Saturday nights, starting at 10 p.m. Eastern, most of the time, Tracy and I do a segment where we look over the SBU cases that have been happening over the past week. And sometimes we even go a little bit further historically back. And one of the things that we've been talking about quite, quite a bit is how many cases and what kind of cases they are finding related to those military offices where everybody had been dismissed. But we also pull out a lot of other kind of corruption things, but very rarely there's been like one or two where we've seen issues of corruption, but having to do with military equipment. And those are usually somebody within the Ukrainian military who tried to save some money and ordered chest protector armor shields. They ordered a different specification than what they were required to and tried to pocket the difference. So we talk about all that kind of stuff on Saturday, just depending on what kind of cases there is. So yeah, we do it. We call it SBU crime and punishment on Saturday nights. And that's, yeah, we pull out the corruption and we bring it to to the forefront and let people know. This last week, we talked about, about a judge who had been arrested. Just wanted to put that in there just as a, a piece of information. Sorry, language for interrupting, but just thought I'd add that. That actually sounds pretty nifty. I will say the, the last thing on the whole recruitment officer scandals, I know you'd be fired a bunch there, even good actions can have bad consequences. It is very difficult to find anybody who wants to take those jobs right now because of the historical idea that if you're a recruitment officer, you're a corrupt SOB and then all the old guys get fired. Oh, you want that job now? So they've been having a noted challenge in finding people to fulfill those roles. And it's also, I'd say justifiably colored the perspective for the average Ukrainian citizen of what those roles entail. Life is shades of gray. Even the best actions have unforeseen consequences. And that's just happens to be one of them for that specific thing. Like you, you couldn't pay me enough to go be a recruitment officer in Ukraine right now. Cause nobody's going to like you because even people who are like, oh, he's in the military. Now, oh, all of them got fired and you signed up for that job. What does that say about you? Are you really going to be Mr. Smith goes to Washington or are you going to be part of the old crowd? That's just the reality of it. People's perspectives are hard to change. Yeah, that's what I had heard recently with that. And again, it's just trying to convert to a new democracy and get rid of the old corrupt ways. And it just takes time. And I also appreciate the information on the Saturday night. And I will make a point of trying to listen to that. And uh, thank you both. I might be able to take one or two more of them. I'll throw the uh, text and audio off and I got a skedaddle. I'll try to be quick. I was just going to tell you that I, you're talking about drone defense. I went to a seminar, national, international conference actually on, on UAVs. And I talked to a bunch of people. I was there trying to help other companies find technology partners. And I talked to a guy, believe it or not, who was from Ukraine. And uh, it was a Ukraine aerospace company, and they were selling UAVs at this show. And we talked a little bit about security and about real, um, you, uh, what do you call it, where they're completely autonomous, not even first person or any kind of controls, whatever, but programmed in and what would have to be done. 
A gentleman said, the biggest problem you're going to have will ultimately be security. And he says, I'll give you a clue. He says, if you're looking to start a company, he says, start a company with focusing on the defense from UAVs, not creating UAVs. He says, for, he said, for every dollar that's going to be spent on UAVs, $10 are going to be spent on trying to stop them because the problem is that hard. And that was, like I said, it was an engineer from Ukraine who told me that. Having said that, have you seen any effort at all to use drone on drone attacks? In other words, you put a shotgun or an explosive device on a UAV and you fly it into somebody else's UAV. Have you seen any of that yet? And I'll listen. They just crash them into each other. They don't do anything fancy with them. They'll just take a drone and slam it into the other guy's drone and they both break. Sometimes it's a bigger drone. You come up from underneath it and you can hit it. I've seen the Russians do it to ours. I've seen the Ukrainians do it to theirs. It's, that's the last thing I've seen is if you see it, then like you just guys get real focused and they just slam their drone into it. Like it's bumper cars that works for certain ones, but obviously it doesn't really work for an FPV. Also, we had some guys in one of the units we were with, they just had a machine gunner whose whole job, he ended up being much better at it than I thought he would, was just to take his machine gun and try and do his little mental math calculations and throw it a wall of bullets into the air when something came in. And they actually got a video of him shooting down a Lancet drone before it made impact, which was pretty nifty. But I wouldn't recommend that. That's a, that's a lot of math you're doing and a lot of luck you're pulling out of your ass right at the last minute because you're essentially just dealing with a missile that can move around a lot. I didn't see anything with shotgun shells or whatnot. I saw a lot of really terribly dangerous homemade explosives that people put on drones, but that was more for the purposes of blowing other things up, not drones themselves. Because drones themselves can be fairly weak. I, I didn't see any nets or stuff, if that's what you're asking. The reason they say shotguns are so useful is if you have a pretty wide open choke, they're only good for about 30 yards or something like that. But you put buckshot, heavier shot in it, they'll rip one of those plastic things to pieces and you may not even destroy your own drone. So a lot of people have talked about that's a possibility, but damn, the hard thing is getting it close enough and finding them because they're so small. By the time they're there, it's usually too late. But I'll listen. Different kinds of drones. We're so used to the idea of either, oh, drones are a thing in the sky that looks at you. Or maybe, oh, we have these civilian drones that can look at you from smaller times and you can shoot those with a shotgun, right? They get close enough. Or it's the big predator drones. They drop a missile on you. And that's basically a plane. So where do you just treat it like it's a plane that goes up versus, oh, we have an RPG that's screaming towards you at 60 miles an hour or whatever. And it's ducking around buildings to find you. That's a very scary thing, man. And the autonomous side of things, I know um, I've seen the switchblade drones over there. Guys hold on to the launchers afterwards as like a trophy for whatever reason. Uh, like they just have them in their barracks and stuff. And those are fully autonomous or have the capability of being fully autonomous within a certain section. If and when somebody finds a way to make these loitering munitions fully autonomous, these little suicide drones, then we will be in time for a very scary world. But I think we have a couple more years before we have to worry about that Black Mare scenario. Hopefully. I did see you pop your hand up there for a second. If you want to do the last question in language, I can't tell you how much I've appreciated this tonight. It's been so wonderful to hear you again. Will, did you have a last question? And then we'll let language do what language does. I, I forgot my question from before, so I'll just let you go right to what language does. Uh, not a whole lot these days, it seems. I've thrown the audio and the text up in the nest. If that's something you're interested in, please feel free to share it. I am always interested in people's perspectives. The text is there. You can read it. Let me know how many grammatical errors I have. 
the audio is there. Let me know how many times I breathed and then edited it out. Um, feel free to share it. Questions, comments, concerns. My DMs are always open. Just don't be a jackass. Otherwise, yeah. Thank you guys. This is nice. It's something I hope to do a little bit more in the future. And this is helpful for me in more ways than one. And I appreciate you guys giving me the time to talk about it because it is challenging sometimes to talk about it with other people where I currently am and have the same sort of response and interest. And so you guys giving me that is very, very helpful. And so I thank you for it. And I thank you for the work that you do. But with that, I will leave you guys to it. Have a wonderful evening. And I will see you when I see you. I think we're tentatively planning on doing this once or twice a week. We'll see if that continues. I will. Um, and depending on my schedule and all that yeah, stuff. Yeah, depending on what whatever works for you. I believe we were shooting for uh, Mondays and Wednesday. And if that works for you, I think that's fabulous that you can, you know, how to get a hold of us.